from playing 18 to a full 60. Early leads to buzzer beaters. It all starts by getting on the board. Welcome inside episode 72 of On the Board. I am Colby McKee, and I thought it was going to be a little bit of a conundrum tonight. No Lance Dahl, no Corey Bacoskis. But you know what? My man, Mr. Scott Roblin, came through. Scott, thanks so much for joining me, first off. Secondly, you know the last time that you were on the podcast with us? It was me, you, and Lance back in July of 2019. That was the last time you were on the podcast. Crazy. It's been That's way too long. a long time. Way man. too long. It was back in episode five, believe it or not. That was pre-Panini times. Oh, 100%. Like, 100%. Holy. Uh, it was great to have you with us. Thank you so much for, for hopping in and being a part of this. Uh, for those who may not know, Scott, uh, obviously with Chat Sports, does a great job here locally in Medicine Hat. And also, brand new to your resume, uh, being the color man alongside Mr. Bob Ridley for home broadcast of Tigers hockey this past season. Uh, let's start there before we get into the, all the hockey and all the sports coming up uh, in the next little bit. But tell us about that opportunity, how that came about, and just your overall thoughts of working alongside a guy like Bob and, and just the entire experience of this abbreviated 22-game season that you guys had. Yeah, it was wild. Um, it kind of started going back to the 2019 season. Uh, I got... Uh, asked to fill in for uh, for one game uh, during the season. It was a game against Calgary Hitman, and uh, had a blast with that. Uh, I previously, before coming to Medicine Hat, did two years of play-by-play in the SJHL uh, for Melfort and Nippowin, and hadn't been back in the booth in about three years at that point, and was able to do color, which uh, was awesome. And uh, this year, when the season kind of got announced on what it was going to look like in terms of travel, the, the biggest thing with Bob, uh, he wasn't going to be able to be on the team bus, which um, was a, was a big thing because he would have had to and had to drive around to to Edmonton and to Lethbridge and to Red Deer and Calgary all yeah. over the province and it was one of those things where I was like, hey, okay, hey, I was. It wasn't even so much as a, a, a broadcasting role. It was more of like, hey, can you chauffeur Bob around the <laughs> province a little bit? For sure. um, and, and I mean, he's a guy who needs no help chauffeuring because uh, obviously he has all that experience driving the the Tigers bus. But um, so yeah, we ended up uh, going on a, a road trip up to Edmonton for the first game against Oil Kings this year, and uh, that was a whirlwind day. We left at about uh, eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning, and we got back at about uh, three thirty in the morning. My round trip one day yeah. with a game called in between and uh, I had a blast and you know Bob is just the most gracious fantastic person and just uh, you know it was awesome to to share uh, share the truck with him that day and share a, a broadcast booth with him once again and uh, just kind of things progressed and uh, you know Bob said that uh, they were looking for a new color guy and uh, I jumped at the chance because I mean what an unbelievable opportunity and obviously I followed the Tigers the last number of years going into my fourth year covering this Tigers team so uh, it, it just made sense and it was a chance to get back in the broadcast booth which is something I've wanted to do for a long time and uh, managed to call uh, I believe 10 or 11 games this year which was awesome and it was such a, a weird experience I mean you know you first get to to co-op place and uh, they take your temperature and you sign all the forms every time you go and uh, you go up to the broadcast booth and I was actually in the next broadcast booth over from Bob we basically just had a longer extension so we had a pane of glass between us so I never actually called in the same room as right. Bob the entire season but um it was it was really cool, very strange. No fans in the building. Um, it, it definitely lacked a lot when you talk about the energy that the fans bring, um, and that goes to any building in the WHL. I mean, the fans just are such an integral part of it at the junior hockey level. So. 
That was very strange, but uh, it was so cool to be one of the few people in the community to actually watch the Tigers in person, right. like to actually see, you know, Ryan Chazowski and Cole Clayton and Brett Kemp and uh, Lucas Vakovsky, Garen Bjorklund, these guys, um, you know, really elevate their game this year. And so to see that in person was really, really cool. And to see kind of that development, it was also kind of weird because for my day job of, um, you know, being sports anchor here at chat. I didn't talk to any of these players in person all year. Exactly. Um, it, it was a strange thing for guys like, you know, the three overagers and Chizowski and, and Clayton and Kemp. Uh, final year, last chance, uh, last kick at the can for them. And they knew that they weren't going to be playing playoffs or, or going for a championship. It was mostly for development for the younger guys. But uh, it was weird all year from seeing them come in for the training camp and quarantine and talking to them then and to talking to them for their last interviews of the season as they left to go back home. I didn't talk to them face to face at one, once this entire year. It was all over Zoom. So. There was a lot of things that were different this year, but um, it was just awesome to have hockey come back. Uh, it, really, at that point, that was the first major sport to to come back to Medicine mm-hmm. Hat since the start of the pandemic. So uh, it was just a very cool experience to be a part of it and to share it with Bob Ridley. Uh, you know, I can't ask for a better mentor. I don't know. I, I'm, I shouldn't say I sh- I'm not speaking for all of, of Medicine Hat Tigers fans who are listening to Chat 94.5 for the broadcast, but I think you and you and Bob, I told you this off mic, I'll tell you this on mic, you guys did a bang-up job. I really enjoyed uh, listening to you guys call a game, and I really uh, hope that continues years down the road, and uh, we'll see what happens with Mr. Ridley and all that good stuff, but uh, really bang-up job. No, Scott, I appreciate that. Job. You know, I really appreciate that. It's it's just been awesome to kind of get back into that side of things. I, I really enjoy the the play calling, whether it's play-by-play or color, of, of being in the building for a game. I mean, I love covering games, too, uh, from a reporting angle, but actually calling the games and being part of the live uh, thing is is so much fun. And um, I mean, uh, the, I did notice, you know, we, we had a lot of chemistry, Bob and I, but uh, I'm sure it's not tough for Bob to generate chemistry with anyone. <laughs> uh, you know, he's, he's a guy who can uh, strike up a conversation or call a game with pretty much any person on the street. So I'm just uh, very glad it was me. 100%. <laughs> uh, one of the guys you just mentioned in terms of the overages uh, for the Tigers this past season, Cowboy Cole Clayton. I mean, uh, we both look at the stat numbers and see what a crazy statistical year he had from the back end. Uh, led all Western Hockey League defensemen in points. And I, I saw your, your messages on Twitter about just your reasoning behind Cowboy not getting the Central Division's Defenseman of the Year award. That went to the Oil Kings' uh, Matthew Robertson. And I 100% agree with you on all your points. Uh, If you just want to elaborate a little bit more on what you tweeted and just, uh, I mean, the the entire award section for the Central Division was all dominated by the Oil Kings. Not even the Scholastic Award could have been won by anybody other than the Oil Kings. To me, it seemed a little bit crazy. Uh, I just want to know your thoughts on on the, the Cole Clayton award debate uh, more specifically. Yeah, and I want to start this off by saying all respect in the world to Matthew Robertson and what he was able to do this year. I mean, he's a first-round NHL draft pick for a reason, and I think he's going to be uh, a really, really solid kind of a middle-pairing defenseman down the road for the Rangers uh, in in the years to come, and he's had a fantastic WHL career. However, I will say that it does seem kind of crazy that the WHL's leading scorer amongst defensemen is not going to be nominated for Defenseman of the Year. You could probably make the argument that Cole Clayton 
maybe wasn't the best defenseman in the entire WHL this year. But for a guy to put up 30 points in 23 games, I know he's an overager, but he, Cole Clayton's really never showed this offensive flash before this season. Never. Um, he, he took such huge strides in the offseason. He lost a pile of weight in the offseason. If you saw him actually live on person in the ice, he's so much leaner. He's a lot quicker, but he still has that build where he can check guys and get in the corners, those type of things. But just became a lot quicker and a lot more confident in using his shots. I remember talking to him earlier this year, and he just was able to shoot the puck and, and actually have some confidence that's going to find the nets and have a create a good scoring chance. So Cole Clayton this year, 23 games, had nine goals and 30 points. That was five more goals than Matt Robertson and eight more points than Robertson. Now, Clayton did play in one more game, but I think sure. when you take one <laughs> or two games, it's it's pretty comparative. Um you know, the one aspect where Clayton did trail Robertson was in plus minus. Now, I'm personally not a big fan of plus minus as it comes to stats. Um, this award was voted on by the general managers and the coaches around the WHL. So there might be some who believe in that plus minus stat a little bit more. So that's how I could see that Robertson wins it. Um, and he did play on a team that won the division and were the better team mm-hmm. than the Tigers this year. But in saying that, I think for individual performances and the strides he took, I think Clayton should have at least been named the defenseman of the year here in the Central Division. P- matching him up with the other divisions, it's tough this year because they didn't play each other. But I, and I can make I could see the argument where he might not not necessarily win the 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 Bill Hunter Award. But I think just for Central Division Defenseman of the Year, I, th- I thought it was such a lock that he would win it. Um, I'm sure it was probably close in the voting, but uh, I was a little bit surprised to see Robertson come away with it. I just hope that it wasn't anything to do with uh, draft capital as well. I hope that the the name value and and, and all of that didn't come into play. I'm sure it didn't. I'm sure the coaches and, and the GMs, like you mentioned, came into it with uh, you know with open eyes and open arms. But like you said, it's just... It's a little bit baffling. Statistically, it doesn't make sense. Uh, if you're going team record, then that's your case and 100%. But uh, I think I, I agree with you. Cowboy deserved a better fate in that aspect. He was uh, he, he was arguably the MVP of this team, and he was awarded that alongside Chazowski and Kemp. Uh, all three of them shared the MVP honors for the team. Uh, just a tremendous season. And like you mentioned, a guy that we had no expectations of having this offensive game just come to light like that. Well, and I think that's the big, one of the bigger reasons why I think, you know, he should have gotten more consideration for the award again. We don't know what the actual voting was, so we don't know where he fell, if it was a close one or if if Matt Robertson won it by a mile. Um, you know, Matt Robertson is the sexy pick for that award because he is coming off being a first-round NHL draft pick. And again, you know, seeing Matt Robertson in person, he's got a cannon of a shot. He's so defensively responsible and... Uh, Uh, easily is one of the best defensemen in the WHL. But I think when you take a look at the numbers and for Cole Clayton, uh, those nine goals, I think, make a big difference. Now, three of them did come in one game. He was able to get his first career hat trick pretty early on in the season against the Calgary Hitmen. But really over the course of the year, especially on the power play, I mean, the Tigers power play ran at 40% the entire season. I remember when they re- they got up to that 40% number about three weeks into the season or yeah. so. And I remember doing a story with, with Joe Frazier and, you know, obviously they're excited, they're happy, but you don't expect a power play to roll at 40% the entire season. Never. No. And, and, 
you know, 23 games is a big enough sample size to see that this was the best power play in the WHL this year. And Cole Clayton anchored so many minutes of that. And I think that's equally impressive when you take a look at the second power play unit for the Tigers. That had three defensemen on it. Now, mm-hmm. Willie Desjardins rolled out some interesting power play <laughs> combinations over the last couple of years. Last year, it was the five forward power play. Yeah, all forwards. This year, he put Drew Krebs, Eric Van Imp, and Daniel Baker on the same power play unit and basically used Dan Baker as a rover around the ice. Mm-hmm. Even with those three guys on the second power play unit, Cole Clayton still outscored all of them just being the lone defenseman on that first power play unit for the Tigers. So I think just his power play acumen, look, five on five, I think Matt Robertson probably put up a few more points. The vast majority of Clayton's points came on the power play. But I really do think that it was just, you know, that excellence on the power play and also from his own end, he he really took some strides in his leadership ability, I think, in teaching some of the young guys on defense. You know, I look at Luke Rubinsky and Aiden Brook and um, Rhett Parsons. Reed Andreessen's a great example, yeah. too, a 15-year-old. Um, really was a good leadership example and really led by example in terms of his physicality and his defensive play as well. Um, but I think just his offensive outburst this year, um, I, I was a little surprised it didn't get a little bit more love from from the WHL in that aspect. He did get a Player of the Week award, but for, other than that, that was pretty much it for Cole Clayton this year. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned Andreessen. It was nice to see across the league as well, seeing those first rounders be eligible to play this season. Uh, Andreessen's a great example. He, he, I remember his first game, I was working, uh, working the game here at Chat 94.5, and he started out on the third pair. I think you might have been working it as well. And by the end of the game, Willie had him on the first pair with, with Cowboy. Like, it was impressive to see his play and then that ability to to jump up into high, you know, risk situations late in that third period when they had a lead and they trusted this 15-year-old in a, in a situation like that in his first career WHL game. Uh, very impressive. I can't wait to see what he does, uh, you know, a year or two down the road as a, another anchor on this Tigers blue line. Well, Andreessen was put out onto the ice, like you said, in that game with about three and a half minutes to play with the Tigers holding on to a one-goal lead. Like, he just... I wouldn't say dominated that game, but he did not look out of place. He set up an assist on the winning goal. I remember he set up a, just a nice play charging into the offensive zone and took a shot and the rebound kicked out and the Tigers ended up scoring on that play. Uh, he was able to get his first career goal against uh, Red Deer uh, near the back end of the season as well. Um, look, when you look at him on the ice, especially in person, you can tell he's 15. Like he's he's very, very small, but he just has no fear. He was into the boards a couple of times. There was one I remember against the Calgary Hitman where he was in, <laughs> he was, uh, he was covering uh, a pinching Jackson Vandalese, which is the craziest size difference I think I've ever seen right. in the WHL. Vandalese is about 6'7", and Andreessen's about 5'6". So <laughs> there's a full foot difference between the two of them in about three or four years. Um, but uh, he just had no fear, and he actually played pretty well along the wall. And when you take a a look at stepping up in the rush. I mean, uh, looking at his highlights from Bantam in, in Saskatchewan, that is why the Tigers drafted him at at, uh, at 11th overall this past year, or last year. Uh, it's just his ability to step up in the rush, kind of uh, become a, a fourth forward, I guess, as well. Uh, still defensively responsible and is kind of that new age defenseman of towing the line a little bit smaller, but has no problem joining the rush. He did that pretty much all season. And when I talk with uh, Willie Desjardins, for his season-ending press conference at the end of the year, I asked about the rookies because, of course, this was such a development season. The Tigers had 15 rookies play at least a game for them this year, which is unheard of for them in their history. 
And he, the first guy he mentioned was Reed Andreessen. And I think that speaks volumes about a guy who in any other year would maybe have gotten one, maybe two games like Oasis Wise Blight and Cole Sillinger in their 15 year old yeah. years as AP call ups. He was able to play in about half of the games for the Tigers this year mm-hmm. and just got better and better as it went along. So as a 16 year old, honestly, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that we see Reed Andreessen playing top four minutes next year. I really don't. He might start on the third pair just uh, to get it back in him, but mm-hmm. uh, the Tigers are going to be without Cole Clayton next year, obviously graduating. My guess is they're probably going to have to decide between either Dan Baker or Eric Van Imp on the back end in terms of an overager who they bring back because yeah. I look at um, you know Lucas Fakovsky as a guy that you're probably bringing back up front um, and uh, I just really, really think that the Tigers are going to be losing at least one other top four defenseman, maybe two. Yeah. So there's going to be opening up gaps here. And I know that he's a year younger than guys like Parsons and Brook and Rubinsky, but he was just so impressive. And I think he's already going to garner a lot of attention on the power play starting into early next year. He arguably played better than those guys that you just mentioned in, in spurts for sure. Uh, I, I know Corson Hopple is going to be in the yeah, contention as well yeah. for the 20. I hope that uh, he gets a chance to play with Fikoski next year as well. Well, and... All year, I just marveled at, you know, it sucks it's not going to happen again next year, but just Hoppo's chemistry with Brett Kemp was just unbelievable all season yep. long. I, I I can't even count how many two-on-one rushes they had the other way where Kemp would just throw it across to Hoppo. And if you said at the beginning of the year, Corson Hoppo would lead the Tigers in goal scoring, I don't think you'd really take anyone seriously, but he just took such strides in his offensive game, looks so confident with the puck, just has really, really good shot placements and had the longest goal scoring streak in the entire WHL this year. Um, he's a very impressive player and just the hard nose aspect to his game as well, I think is going to be very beneficial in his overage year. If he comes back to the Tigers and is chosen as one of the three 20 year olds to return, um, he's definitely going to be relied upon. And I could see him, especially, um, you know, if, and when Cole Sillinger comes back to the Tigers next year, uh, I, I, I bet that Corson Hop would be playing on his wing. We talked to him uh, on the podcast a, a couple episodes ago and man, it was just a great, a great treat to talk to him and to hear his story. Like you mentioned, like a seventh round pick, uh, playing alongside Captain Hamlin in his first year in spurts and re- sticking for, for all of his second year, uh, another hard-nosed, hard-working guy that is like a Willie Desjardins player through and through. I'm really happy to see his success. And uh, like I said, I wish him all the best. Hopefully he's playing in the orange and black next year. Uh, in terms of Tigers news and notes the last uh, 24, 48 hours, you mentioned uh, the prospects draft, the U.S. draft. Uh, where are the Tigers being placed in, in that draft and what can they look forward to uh, coming up later this year? So this might be a four-hour podcast if I try and go through all the uh, <laughs> the draft lottery rules this year. It was, was that was nuts to it, watch. There was too. four different stages to the draft lottery yeah. this year, which is it was kind of confusing, but it kind of made sense. So basically what they did was they separated teams, the 22 teams into different pools. So there was the pool of the four division winners. They each got one lottery ball in. Then there was the last place in all the divisions, plus two in Saskatchewan because they had an extra team uh, were each got four lottery balls and the rest got two lottery balls. And what they basically did is they drew one of those. Whoever got drawn, except if it was a division winner, the uh, the rest of the teams, if yours came up, then you won the draft lottery, moved to number one. If it was a division winner, you go to number six. And then they do the individual pools to decide where they fall for the rest of that. So the Spokane Chiefs, in the same pool as the Medicine Hat Tigers, had the exact same odds as Medicine Hat. Spokane ended up uh, winning, and they, it looks like they're going to be drafting a kid out of Saskatoon named Berkeley Catton, who seems like a very, very promising you know forward for them down the line. He's kind of consensus number one. I was talking to Bobby Fox uh, about him yesterday. And uh, so 
basically what happened then was the the latest the Tigers could fall was number 18. That was the very furthest. And they basically drew in reverse order of that Pool B group of, uh, I believe there was like 12 teams or 14 teams that were in there. Um, and so they started drawing and uh, it the Tigers just kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And they ended up, up getting pick number eight. So it's really the third best <laughs> um, results that yeah. they could have gotten. They didn't get first. They didn't get se- seventh, which would have been the next best. Okay. But eighth, um, I was talking with Bobby Fox and he's very, very happy. He says, we're going to get a very good player at number eight. And the craziest stat I, I read yesterday, I actually had to check it a couple times because I couldn't believe it. Back in 2016, the Medicine Hat Tigers had the fifth overall pick. They draft Josh Williams with that pick. Obviously, Josh Williams got traded to Edmonton in exchange for Brett Kemp. Deal worked out pretty well for both teams. I think so. This will be only the second time the Tigers have held a top 10 pick in the WHL draft since 2003. Wow. 18 years. 18 years. This is only other than the Josh Williams draft. They haven't had a top 10 pick since. Because as a consistency, though, yeah. they've just been consistently good to great for that amount of time, too. Yeah. So this is a very rare opportunity for Medicine Hat just by luck in the group that they were grouped in. It, it really didn't have to do a whole lot with the standings. They could have been pick 18 or pick eight. And they ended up getting pick eight in this one. Yeah. So um, when it comes to the rest of the draft, they slot kind of around pick 20 or so, mm-hmm. um, around 19, 20. But uh, for this first round, they're going to get a top 10 pick. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, they're talking to the Tigers there's no real way they're deciding right now the the other interesting thing with this is usually the the lottery happens and then the draft happens like a day or two later right because all minor hockey really hasn't been played in western Canada in the states it has been but in western Canada it hasn't um these players in the 06 draft year haven't had a chance to show their skills to scouts that often. So what they've done is they've pushed the draft to December. So it'll be December 8th for the U S draft and December uh, or December 7th, December 8th, I believe. Um, So the tigers know for about six months that they're going to be drafting at number eight. They know they have a top 10 pick. So they got a lot of runway to figure out who they're going to pick. And it's also another interesting thing where they, as the season is going on, they're going to be heavily scouting all of these, um, you know, events, WHL Cup, hopefully if it goes on in October, um, just to see who they're going to choose at number eight. So there's there's a lot of moving gears this year. And uh, the U.S. prospects draft lottery was held today. A lot easier. There's only 22 balls and then they just did reverse order. (laughs) Um, So the Tigers got 20th there. Not amazing, but it is a snake draft. So they get number 25 as well. So they get two two picks quite close together. Um, They picked Oliver Moore and and Josh Erickson last year, which was the first U.S. prospects draft. So we'll see who they pick at at number 20 for the U.S. But for number eight for the Tigers, this is a very, very unique opportunity for them to kind of swing for the fences a little bit. I mean, you look at Cole Sillinger. Cole Sillinger was not a top 10 pick in the WHL draft, right? He was 11. 11. So there's a lot of opportunity here to get a guy of Cole Sillinger's status or even higher. it really depends on who goes ahead of him. Uh, there's a lot of interesting situations. I think none more so than uh, the Brandon Wee Kings, who are going to be drafting third and fourth overall, right. along with 22nd overall. Wow. Um, they were able to get picks uh, from, I believe, Moose Jaw and Victoria, I think. Uh, so that will allow them to get back-to-back picks as well and build up. I mean, they got Zimmer and, and Danielson, and they got some really, really high-end players that are coming through the system there. So that's a team to watch. But for Medicine Hat, 
um, you know, this is a, a great chance for them to to add another talent that's going to be featured along guys like Reed Andreessen, like Oasis Wiseblad over the next couple of years. Cannot wait to see that. Uh, also can't wait to potentially see the day where Connor Bedard hits the gas city. Um, we didn't obviously get to see him being that Regina Pats were in the Saskatchewan bubble. Uh, but I really hope, like you mentioned, like we can get fans in the stands and uh, we can get the Pats and Connor Bedard in Medicine Hat because that will be a hot ticket. He's going to be a hot ticket wherever he goes the next year or so uh, playing with Regina Pats. G- give me a quick thought on Bedard, what you've seen, and the the talent we knew was there. We were a little worried, I, you know, the three of us, we were talking like, can he live up to all this hype? And what would be a respectable season heading into this, you know, abbreviated season? And he not only surpassed it, but he like set the bar five, six times down the line. The season he put up in, he only played, he didn't play all the season because of the death in the family, but um, an insane talent. And he's, he hasn't, we haven't had a WH star, WHL star this big, I think. In I can't even go back. We were talking about like maybe Braden Shen, maybe uh, Ty, uh, Tyson Rowdy, like somebody of that ilk that carries that name brand with him in the WHL. It's been forever, and this guy in his abbreviated season really came through with flying colors. Connor Bedard, as a 15-year-old, was one of the top five players in the WHL this year, I think. And I'm throwing up guys like Peyton Krebs and Ben McCartney and guys who really are going to be good players in the NHL one day. Um as a 15-year-old, he was pulling off moves I've never seen a 15-year-old pull off um, other than, you know, maybe a guy like Connor McDavid. Uh, his just ability to replays, jump into traffic, his puck possession's elite, uh, his speed is elite, his shot placement is his among, among the best I've ever seen. Um, uh, you just look at that goal he scored in the gold medal game against the Russians. What a backhand. Carries the puck in off a pass from, uh, it was actually Corson Kuhlman's of the Brooks Bandits who sent that up to him, and just walks in and like it was nothing, throws a backhand top shelf from about 15 feet out. Like, the nerve of this kid. Uh-huh. And and I think we, we were all put on warning his first game where he scores a couple goals, and I saw it. Oh, man, Connor Bedard scored two goals in his Twice. first game. They're both highlight real goals of him coming, 50 seconds apart, coming out of the corner and deking his way through experienced WHL defenders. Yeah. Um, and the scary part is, can you imagine what he's going to be when he's 18? Well, first off, he won't be in the dub. He will be on a, on a uh, NHL roster. We only get two seasons of them now, and we had to two really more. cherish it. Two, yeah. two more. So I really, yeah, it's gonna be scary. Very scary thought. But uh, yeah, cannot wait to hopefully see him in the hat uh, next next season. That'd be fantastic. Uh, we'll switch things over to Hockey Canada side of things. Big news out of their world: uh, the Women's World Championships was previously canceled back in April. Uh, which caused a lot of negative reaction online, wondering what the heck are they doing? They're canceling it this last minute. Do they have plans in place for something down the road? One of the options, um, I was listening to 31 Thoughts with Jeff Merrick and Elliot Friedman, and they mentioned that this August date was a possibility for the Women's World Championships. Uh, not ideal given their their situation, their schedule going forward, um, but is an option nonetheless. And they ended up going with this one. Going to be played up in Calgary uh, in August. Uh, your thoughts on this? I'm just happy that these women get to play and get to represent their country first and foremost. And uh, it was a shame that it had to be canceled in the first place. But 
Calgary stepped up and it's going to be still be a great tournament nonetheless. Well, when you take a look at what the Calgary bubble has done in terms of curling and also for the uh, the Secret Cup that just wrapped up in Calgary for uh, the PWHPA last weekend, uh, both were highly successful events. So, um, you know, there's there's no reason in my mind that I would think that there this isn't going to succeed for the, the women's worlds. Um, this is a very big tournament for Team Canada, not only because they haven't played uh, as Team Canada in about two years at this point, by the time it rolls around, um, this is essentially going to be Team Canada for the Olympics because Olympic centralization starts in July for this Team Canada and they are going to bring in their roster and they're going to trim it down from there and they're basically going to have their team set at that point, which is going to play in the Olympics and by proxy because they're already in Calgary and that's where it's going to be held and it's after the centralization Team Canada is going to be Team Canada. So we're going to get a preview wow. of what the Olympic team is going to look like. Um, there was a lot of really you know, controversial selections for this women's team for the centralization. Um, you know, big names like, you know, Laura Fortino and Genevieve Lacasse and, and Renata, uh, Renata Fast is on the team. But, um, you know, uh, Gable not making the team either, yeah. or Lauren Gable, and uh, there's Bridget Laquette's. There's there's a number of players who are left off this this roster, mm -hmm. which was really interesting. Um, so Canada's definitely going to even have to make some tougher cuts coming up here over the next number of weeks. But going back to the women's worlds, uh, this is just so desperately needed, and it's it's come way too late, I think, at this point. But I'm still excited for the women that they are going to be able to hold this. Um, I know the women and Hockey Canada themselves were quite disappointed when uh, Nova Scotia basically backed out and pulled the plug yeah. uh, just a couple weeks before the tournament was set to start. So uh, this is a chance for them to really make their mark. And I think it's great for the women's game. They're just building on a bunch of momentum right now from the, the Secret Cup in Calgary. And um, this, I hope, is going to continue that that ball rolling down the hill for for the women's game, especially here in our country and internationally. I mean, th you're seeing the international teams get better and better. The rivalry with the States is still incredible. Of course. Yeah. You're seeing just great players from Sweden and Finland and Japan who are going to be playing in this tournament. Um, and these women, they basically pointed at when they got canceled. Well, the world U18s are happening in Texas. Yeah. Why are why are the guys getting the shot and we're not getting a shot? So, 100%. Um, you know, uh, it, this is this is it shouldn't have to happen in August, but I'm glad it's finally happening. And, and I have no reason in my mind to think if public health restrictions start to get rolled back and things get a little bit better by the time August rolls around, I think we should be good, hopefully. And uh, and Calgary's already proven even in the middle of a pandemic that they can host these international events. So I, I think it's it's a win all around. Um, would have loved to see it in Nova Scotia because, I mean, Halifax can put on a great show. They we sure we know that for, for you know, uh, World Juniors and, and Memorial Cups, those type of things. Yeah. Uh, would have been great to see it out there. But, you know, selfishly to see this in Alberta as well, uh, it's pretty cool. Alberta in general, I mean, even going back to the uh, NHL bubble with Edmonton, like Edmonton and, and Calgary have really shown mm -hmm. to be uh, one of the forefronts when it comes to these sort of situations and accommodating everything that needs to go into keeping players, staff, everybody safe. So uh, good on Alberta, just in general. Just a little shout out to our home province. Um, Bridget Lacat, definitely a name that Lance brought up uh, when we first talked about this story uh, a couple of months ago uh, with the centralization period. I crazy situation with her and a bunch of others like you mentioned just not making it um obviously reasons behind that but we'll touch on that on a, on a different day as well we'll switch things over now to the nhl side of things and uh it's hard not to 
join the topic of the day, which is the Shifley hit on Jake Evans last night, Winnipeg and Montreal. Um, we wondered how many games were going to come down for Shifley uh, for this hit, and it was announced today. Five games. No, sorry, four games. That is, I had it down five in my notes. That isn't correct. <laughs> uh, four games for Mark Shifley uh, for his charging hit against Jake Evans. Uh, we'll throw things to you, Scott. Your, your thoughts on the hit. Um, suspension, yay or nay on that. And how does this shape the series going forward for both sides? Because um, the Jets are losing one of their heart and soul guys, one of their best players in Shifley. And for the Montreal side, completely shaken up. Uh, we, we saw what happened with the Maple Leafs. We'll touch on them in a second. Uh, losing Tavares in that series. A little bit different player, obviously, but uh, a scary situation nonetheless. Losing one of their own in a devastating way. Uh, your thoughts on the entire situation last night? Well, I thought the hit was needless and reckless and something unbecoming of Mark Shifley, who I believe is one of the more intelligent players in the game and should know better. Um, extremely disappointing to see. Um, it, it was just the definition of a reckless charge from across the ice. He comes from basically center ice, lines him up. He may not take like seven strides towards him, but he's gliding into him, leaves his feet at one point, uh, goes shoulder first into his head spins him around and it, it was for a needless empty netter like you know the Jets might not think it's needless but the game was over at that point he was going to score and when he watched the replays as well Evans as he's putting it around the net he loses control of the puck for one second and then gets it back so Shifley could have at that moment decided oh there's a loose puck let's knock it away I don't have to go for the hit and he still decided to do it. And so the NHL, like you said, gives him four games. It's more than I thought he was going to get. And I think it's an appropriate punishment, um, especially when you take a look at the NHL's way of doing things, which I don't love, but they treat playoff games like two regular season games, essentially. Mm -hmm. So this is really an eight-game suspension if, you, if this would have been in the regular season. Um, I can't remember the last time a star like this got suspended in the playoffs for this length of time. Usually it's for one or two games. Yeah. Uh, I think it's very much warranted. I think the, I was looking for at least three games. Uh, and I, I think it's a, it's a just suspension for what Shifley did. I mean, that is exactly, you know, a, a lot of the hits you, you take a look at are along the boards into the numbers, uh, you know, smashing someone's head into the, to the stanchion or into the boards. And those are the hits you want to get out of the game, but this is a classic hit you want to get out of the game. And it's not even just a hit from behind or a check from behind. It's a charge. Yeah. It's premeditated. You know, Shifley didn't see him all at once and then just cross check him from behind in the numbers. He skated halfway across the ice to deliver this hit. Um, and for a guy like Shifley, who, uh, you know, hasn't been involved in supplemental discipline over his career, again, I believe is one of the more intelligent players when it comes to hockey IQ and understanding the game and its nuances. Um, a star on his own team who doesn't want to sit any games. Um, he's the last guy I would think that would deliver this hit. I was pretty, I was blown away once I saw the numbers spin around and it was Shifley that delivered it. Um, but you need to send a message. Like it's just not acceptable. Um, and when you ask about how this is going to impact the series, it's going to change the series greatly. Yeah. Uh, the jets are deep. They have a good forward crew. Uh, if this was any other team of just a middle of the pack team, I think I would call them immediately saying, okay, their, their series is basically done. I think the jets have enough talent. They could still win the series, but they're already down a game. They're missing their best centerman. Uh, you know, this is also a situation where I'm like, you know, Pierre-Luc Dubois, your time to step up. This is why he's this here This is now. it. Yeah. Like, uh, he hasn't had a great season since he got brought over, brought over from Winnipeg, but 
this is why we brought you in. Time to play basically top center minutes. Uh, I, I still think I have the Jets winning the series, but if if I had it going five or six, I have it going seven now. Yeah, a little um, more difficult now. The Jets have to dig deep here and they have to try and get over this. And for the Canadians, you just lost one of your everyday players. Mm -hmm. And Jake Evans, a player who I think has made a lot of strides over the last couple of years in becoming an everyday player. Um, I don't think his loss necessarily impacts the team like Shifley being out of the lineup, but um, you know, Joel Edmondson in his post game media availability said, you know, if the NHL doesn't suspend Shifley, we're going after him. Like Mm -hmm. we're going to make his life miserable is basically what he said. So good on the NHL to kind of sidestep that. But, uh, you know, Montreal, I think they're going to be out for blood a little bit here. Like, even though Shifley's got a suspension, um, they're saying, hey, we're up one game in this series. We have the momentum, and they're missing their star player. Let's go. Let's attack. Um, And this is why you have guys like... Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki and guys who are game breakers because they're going to feed on this. Oh, for sure. Um, And for the Jets, for the Jets, sometimes it's like, okay, our top players out of the lineup, let's rally around this. But you're rallying around a player who delivered one of the worst hits we've seen in the NHL this year. And his head coach had to defend it today as well. Yeah, I saw Paul Maurice. I mean, I don't. I don't think Paul Maurice believes what he said. But he I, has I to say. But but he's defending he his to. guy. Yeah. Like I mean, it, we don't expect anything else. Sure. For, especially from a head coach who's been around the block yeah. so many times as Paul Maurice. Um. So I didn't expect anything different. Um. But I I I, I like the suspension from the league. I think it sends a message. The earliest they'll get Mark Shifley back is Game Six if it goes that long. So Winnipeg, they need to start piling up some wins here because they can't afford they can't afford to be in Game Five facing elimination. No, because I think they I don't think they'll crumble, but facing elimination at that point while also with Mark Shifley sitting in the press box, I, I don't put a whole lot of stock into your winning in that game. You talk about the retribution that the Canadians might face. I wonder if the league looked into like. Sure, if it goes six, he's back. What happens in game six and seven if it gets to that point like you're predicting now? Um, this bad blood, it might not be over. After, they could do something in game two and, you know, quote-unquote squash it for now. Like we're all expecting. But uh, if he comes back in this series, like it, extra security, extra uh, protection probably needs to be in place because that series already as tight knit and you know tough as it's going to be now could just blow the roof off of it with the return of Shifley for some pivotal games in six and potentially seven. Uh, that has to had to have gone into the thought process of Department of Player Safety as well. Oh, I think so for sure. And if it was only a two game suspension, I think they're banking on uh, a either the series doesn't go six games or b it's going to be a week later and tempers are going to cool at that point. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think the Habs basically were saying like, we're going to go after him if we don't get the right supplemental discipline, which I think in their minds for games for a guy like Shifley, for a guy who has no prior record, I think that's a pretty harsh sentence, which I think is justified, but we'll see. I mean, we'll see where the series goes. And if Shifley returns and if the Jets stay alive to that point, well, that that's a big storyline going into yeah. game six or game seven. I was I was expecting uh, we talked about it in the group chat as well. I was expecting four to five games for Shifley. So uh, personally, I'm glad the the league got it right. It's been very few times where the league has gotten this right. Uh, so that is one of the few positives out of the situation. And obviously, we hope the best uh, for the health of Jake Evans as well. He's got a history 
of uh, you know head injuries and concussions. So uh, all the best to Jake Evans. Hopefully he makes a a speedy recovery and gets back on the ice soon. I want to recap the first round of the NHL playoffs quickly as we go around the horn. Uh, you know, a couple quick notes here and there. Your thoughts on everything. We'll start things off like we mentioned the Canadians in second round because they beat the Maple Leafs in seven games uh, on the road as well. I just have in the notes here, like, that's so Toronto. I, if you're a, a Leafs fan, and w- there's a few here at the station that I've talked to in the last couple of days, they expected this. Like, for all the positives of the Maple Leafs heading into this season, the Canadian division, how they were expected to just kind of roll over everything, man, like, Lance Dahl's Cana- he's a Canadian's stand through and through the last little while. So he uh, was obviously very thrilled for this one. Uh, but yeah, Maple Leafs, tough look. Like, and what do you do now? Like, your money's wrapped up in four or five top players. Your goaltending situation, I don't know what the heck you're going to do with Freddie Anderson now. Uh, you, you basically exiled him. He's becoming a free agent, so he might not want to stick around if, if there's more Campbell, uh, more, more prospects down the line. Just a lot of question marks now for this Maple Leafs team. What a, a disappointing end to a season for those fans. Yeah, it's it is what the Maple Leafs do, and this team has not earned anything at this point. They haven't earned even a, a second round uh, a second round spot. Um, I think the series was simple. The Leafs top players didn't perform. It's Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews. You can't pay two guys a combined. $22 million, $23 million yeah. and get one goal out of them in the series. Like, it can't happen. Um, and you can say a lot, you know, Carey Price stood on his head. Yeah, Carey Price played well, but Jack Campbell had better numbers. Yeah. Jack Campbell was great all series long, but he can't score goals. He cannot. And so you look at any other sport on the planet. If uh, let's say if uh the Portland Trailblazers are playing a game and Dame Lillard scores 10 points. Do the Trailblazers win? Unlikely. No. Very won't. unlikely. So, like, in every other sport, I get it. Hockey, your biggest stars play a third of the game. Mm-hmm. You still need them to step up and one goal in a series is not going to get it done. And this team has not had the mental fortitude of getting over the hump. And I think at this point, you need to look at a number of changes... And you might have to look at blowing up the core for a couple of reasons. I think the biggest one, not necessarily performance, is you signed all these guys to these massive deals with the expectation that in four or five years, the cap will be higher and the percentage of that cap hit will go down year over year. But then a pandemic hits. I mean, no one asked for it, but, not. but this is the situation we're in. So the, the cap is staying flat for at least the next two years, maybe even three or four and you're still paying all these guys $11 million. And so, I, you know, there's a lot of Mitch Marner rumors right now. Yeah, I, I don't ne- know necessarily if you run to the phone just trying to offload Mitch Marner. But if someone calls, yeah, you listen. Um, Morgan Riley is one year away from uh, unrestricted free agency. You know, you brought up Freddie Anderson. I think with the emergence of Jack Campbell, Freddie Anderson's going to walk as free agent. Yeah. Um, and for the Leafs, they already are close to the cap. They're going to be losing a lot of guys this offseason, I think. But one of them, and I think it would hurt them a lot, is they could be losing Zach Hyman for nothing. 100%. If Zach Hyman is offered a five, five and a half million dollar contract, how the Leafs can't match that. He's not staying for this. No. He's just not. No matter what sort of a pay cut, because they're going to have to do a pay cut. He's going to have to take a pay cut to yes, stay with to the Leafs. To stay with the Leafs, yes. So I just don't, 
why would he want to take a pay cut with, with this roster? I just so next year. I mean, they're going to get young guys in the lineup. They're going to get Nick Robertson probably as a full time guy. We'll see about Rodion Amirov, their their first rounder from last year. But this is a team that needs to do a lot of soul searching, and it's a team with a fan base that are just done. They're just fed up, and they're tired of excuses, and they're tired. You can't be up three games to one on Montreal. And the other part I've seen a lot about the Leafs that is probably the most frustrating, they played their worst game of the series in Game 7. Of course they did. Of course they did. Like, they don't, they, they didn't, they didn't step up. Yeah. Everything was on the line. This is finally your chance to exercise all these demons, and you yeah, put that out, out on the shit ice. the bed. So I, I just look at the Leafs team that needs to do a lot of soul searching, some changes this offseason. I don't know necessarily if Marner's going to get moved, but hmm. I think the conversations are, are valid at this time. It's just insane the moves they did in the offseason, bringing in... I mean, okay, let's be frank. Jason Spezza was their best forward. Yeah. For a large chunk of the series. And that is a problem. Yep. Joe Thornton, Wayne Simmons, these guys that were brought in to play a little bit, play that third and fourth line, but also to provide the mental fortitude, like you mentioned, that the leadership, the experience, all that stuff that this crew, this core has been missing for so long. They've needed that leadership. They're, they're too young. They can't do this and that. And then, you, you like you mentioned, 3-1 in any series should be a lock. And you can't say it was the Tavares injury that put them down no. because they won three straight games after that. Absolutely not. That is a great point. That is That was game one. That was ages ago. You cannot, that's a great point. You cannot even look at that. They were just fine without him. And for this Leafs team, on paper, what would you change? They, they, they're good enough to challenge for the Stanley Cup on paper. Of course they are. Like, this is the part where it's just like, oh, you know, I, I don't put much of this on Kyle Dubas. I put a little bit maybe for, like, the deadline deal for Nick Felino trading a first in a pile of draft picks for a guy. You know, he didn't ask for him to be hurt, but Felino wasn't going to be a guy who was going to provide an offensive impact, especially giving up that much for a guy. You, if you give up a first, you expect a pile of goals, and you didn't get one goal from Nick Felino. What if year. you traded? I wonder if the, uh, the Sabres are, are looking for that for Taylor Hall. I mean, they didn't get a first for... No, they got a second. So, I'm pretty sure Taylor Hall would have provided a little bit more offensive spark. Mm -hmm. I know it's a lot more money and they have to eat a little bit more, but uh, a lot of hindsight 2020, man, on this team. But I just look at, you know, some people are ripping the management and it's just like, what else do you want them to do? At the end of the day, the players got to... Kyle Dubas isn't coming down on the ice and strapping on the skates. Like, you put together the best team you can on paper and then hope they figure it out, and this team hasn't. And at the end of the day, you know what? It, it, I, I don't mind the moves of bringing in Simmons and Thornton and I Bogosian, it. some experience, some guys who, have, you know, Bogosian just won coming off a of Stanley Cup, Joe Thornton, one of the greatest playmakers of all time. Go down the list. The impact was missing from their top end. Of course it was. William Nylander was great all series. Uh, who would have thought that he would have been the yeah. best of the four core yeah. In that spot. No, last offseason, people wanted Willie gone. They didn't want to pay him that no. money. No. And Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews look tentative. They look nervous. They, you know what? They, let's say. All thanks to Philip, Philip Deneau. Philip Deneau Philip played Deneau. a great Philip Deneau was great. Great role. Brandon Gallagher, even though he didn't score a lot, shut them down quite well. Yeah. But for, when you're making $11 million, it's no longer, oh, we tried hard. It's no. results. Like, you're, you're making you're making world beater money. Mm-hmm. Go out and beat the world every game or else it's not acceptable. 
Yeah, no, bang on point. There, that is a bang on point. There is only so much you can say about Toronto. Uh, they've got their work ahead of them, that's for sure. Uh, another series we'll touch on quick: Lightning over the Panthers in six games. This one, I really thought the Panthers had it in them, but they got down super quick. Uh, Lightning kind of ran o- all over them in the first couple games, and they just couldn't catch up. They ha- got really close, and they were one of the few teams in this entire league that really put up some numbers against Andre Vasilevsky, which was super impressive. Beat him in overtime a couple times, uh, but at the end of the day, it just wasn't enough. Lightning move on. We'll touch on them in the second round series, but what did you take of this series for sure? Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, I th- Kind of like Florida and and their chances in this one, but Tampa just showing why they're Tampa. Like they're yeah. the experience, just the depth, you know, top to bottom. The one thing I'm really interested to see for Florida is like, it seems like it's Spencer Knight's net now. So what do that you do? Wild, what do right? you do with the goaltender you're paying ten million dollars right now? Is he going to sit as a backup for the next half decade? We talked about that when when Knight got drafted. Yeah, like you obviously have a thought behind drafting him when you just signed your $10 million goalie like you mentioned. Uh, and, and Chris Drieger kind of coming out of nowhere mm-hmm. too, played very well. He was great this year. All regular season long. So, I mean, if you're talking about having assets, they've definitely got assets in the Florida net, but where does that all shake out? Do you know what, I, on- mine. Do you know what I honestly think happens? And, I mean, it's, if you have a, a an influx of good players. It's not the worst problem in the world, but it is when you're paying one $10 million. I think what happened with Bobrovsky is they, because they signed Bobrovsky to that deal and then drafted Spencer Knight, or was it the other way around? I think it was the deal. F- well, the draft would have been in June and then they signed him maybe in July. Either way, they were super close. It was right, it was right around, and they would have known they were going after Bobrovsky when they drafted Knight. That was one of the rumors for sure. Yeah. I think they were pegging... Spencer Knight would have needed probably because he's not a huge like he needs to fill out still sure I think they're expecting at least three years maybe four for him to develop in the AHL even though he's a first rounder they take uh, forever they always take forever you don't see the Carter Hart jump in right away and so what I think quite honestly Florida was going to do with that because you can you can't trade a 10 million dollar goalie you you just can't what team unless even if you retain half what team is going to pick up a five million dollar goaltender who's a backup is it like roberto longo's contract my contract sucks like is a little bit with but i think what happens was they signed bobrovsky and drafted knight and said okay spencer knight's going to be our goaltender in about four or five years maybe that last that that fourth or fifth year probably will move Bobrovsky to a backup role and mm-hmm. Knight will take over mm-hmm. or we'll start Knight as a backup and one day he'll take over but I think they had this four or five year timeline in place and at the once Knight takes over they were going to buy out the rest of Bobrovsky's deal wow that, that's just that's just a theory I have sure because you can't trade it you know Spencer Knight's your goalie of the future Ooh. and you're probably going to say okay once he takes over we'll hopefully pay the dollar amount enough of the contract mm-hmm. To make it stomachable to to because there's there there was no way they were getting Bobrovsky without that seven year deal there no, was no way no for sure so I think they were probably expecting a buyout at some point they just weren't expecting Spencer Knight to be the goalie of the future now to so, put him in a playoff game and, and two seasons into us Bobrovsky still has like five years left on his deal exactly so I don't know what you do <laughs> like honestly I I can't remember who I saw on Twitter say something like this but it's like. Trade him to Seattle along with like three first round picks just to take that money. Just to take the money. That's the one thing we've talked about on the podcast as well. That this Seattle expansion draft, we thought going in that T 
teams were not going to make those stupid mistakes of trading picks like they did to Vegas and how Vegas got so good so quickly in this crazy cap world pandemic wise we're definitely going to see yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Like there's going to be so many teams like that. Teams are in cap hell right now that weren't in cap hell 18 months ago. Yes. So we are going to see some weird stuff and those GMs making decisions on on saving third liners that they wouldn't get taken, so trading a first round pick, that is the reason why uh Vegas has Max Pacioretty and Mark Stone right now. Because yeah. they drafted with those picks, Nick Suzuki and Eric Brandstrom were traded to Ottawa and Montreal in the Pacioretty and Stone deals. Right. So if not for those GMs being like, oh, we can't, I can't possibly give up my third line left winger. <laughs> uh, that's the reason why Vegas and their top six is so disgusting right now. That's insane. That's a good point. Great point. Like, yeah, like you mentioned, this Seattle team is going to be super interesting. Um, we talked, I know at the deadline, we talked with the whole Taylor Hall thing. Would Buffalo do something with Ike? Was it? A, I think it was an Eichel, maybe an Eichel and Skinner. That I think Steve Dangle was talking about it on his podcast, trading to get that money off as well to, for picks and whatnot. Like just to get for sure Skinner's money, and then some sort of a pick situation to get Eichel out of there as well. Um, there's going to be like you said, silly season coming up with this expansion draft and how Seattle, do they want to be good right away? Do they want, is there a lot of pressure to be good right away like Vegas or do they play the slow game? And they, uh, in, uh, in Vegas's case, they got the picks and they got the, the wins and the results right away. They got the best of both worlds. They did. And I think, I think they're going to follow the Vegas model because they say we have a blueprint in place to be good immediately. And Look, they've already had great ticket drives and stuff like that. Yeah. But the best case scenario for the NHL is if Seattle is sick right out of the gates. Because and it will. By they all will. accounts, I think it's going to be great. They will. Yeah. But the reason why Vegas has such rampant fans right now is because they've been good since they came into the league. Yeah. I hate this overarching thing of like an expansion team, a new team in the NHL has to be bad for six years they gotta to earn their, their dues. That's why you get a team like you know, God love them. That's what you get with a team like Columbus or Atlanta, yeah, yeah. where they had troubles drawing fans because no <laughs> one wants to see this garbage hockey team play a game. <laughs> so you get a good team out of the gate. I know the rest of the GMs don't like it because they're losing good players and good picks, mm -hmm. but that is drawing revenue to your to the NHL who can revenue share with all of you poor teams as well. It all makes sense money-wise. Yeah. It's so, all about money in any league. And sure. with Seattle, I mean, we'll get to it, but with Seattle having the second overall pick right now, theoretically, they could draft a player who can step into the NHL next year. So, I I mean, yeah. Like, yeah Vegas didn't have that option. Vegas no. didn't draft that high. I think They he, draft sixth, but they drafted Cody Glass Cody who Glass. needed some development. That's what it was, 100%. Yeah. You're right. I mean, if it's not uh, power, it's going to be potentially that uh, Swedish left, left winger. Well, yeah, either Edvinson or, or I've seen a lot of Matty Beniers uh, oh, okay. heading their centerman out of uh, out of Michigan. So There you go. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Jets versus Oilers. That one was a sweep. Definitely not a sweep that I was expecting at all. Uh, a lot of folks didn't even have the Jets winning this series, and they're obviously in the second round. Uh, but they stopped. We talked about... Uh, Matthews and Marner getting stopped. McDavid and Drysaddle had like one period where they were good, and that was it. Like the the Jets' collective defensive unit, alongside Connor Hellebuck, really took it to him. And that triple overtime game, that was nuts to see. Um, I stayed up for it. Uh, I'm glad I did because that was something to see. And just the whiteout atmosphere with no fans, still cool to see that entire arena whiteout. 
Yeah, that was a wild series just because, I mean, Edmonton had played the Jets so well all season long. I think of the seven games they played, the Jets won the first game and then the Oilers won the last six. And, and you know, McDavid and Dreisaitl dominated the Jets all season long. So to see them kind of get shut down, especially early in the series, I mean, they kind of got better as the series went along and started driving the offense a bit more, but they just could not get anything past Hellebuck. And Hellebuck was easily the best player for the Jets in that series. And uh, that was the only way they were going to win was was if Hellebuck stood on his head. And it was great. Um, honestly, I think the Oilers were a bit shell-shocked just because they played the Jets so well this year. This was their first year of coming in as like a favorite. I mean, they were against Chicago, but they weren't at any level like they are this year. Um, they finally have, from an unlikely source, stable goaltending from Mike Smith. <laughs> oh, and yeah. he has, I mean, Smith came alive this year and they had good defense, even with Clefbaum out all season. Darnell Nurse has finally like elevated his game to like a, a top level defenseman in this mm-hmm. league. Um, and just in the playoffs, they couldn't get anything going. And no. the Jets were able to get quality offensive production. Nick Ehlers, man, he has just had a fantastic Finally. season. And I want to bring up as well from the Jake Evans hit, Nick Ehlers shielding the rest of like t- t- 10 players At behind least. him, yep. trying to protect a guy on the other team who's unconscious 100%. on the ice. Um, I, I like that Dominic Ducharme specifically mentioned him in his media availability today. So I wanted to bring that up with Nick Ehlers. Great point. But aside from that, fantastic season so much more dangerous with the puck i think it's always been you know this guy is overflowing with potential and talent but he he just hasn't really tapped into being that elite elite stick handler and 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 assist guy Mm -hmm. and he's added an offensive touch this year he's always been an offensive guy but he added more of an offensive presence of driving the play this year which i didn't think he had in previous years um and then on the back end i mean logan stanley really impressive he's a guy when the Jets drafted. I'm like, all right, he's a big, big boy, but uh, can he keep up? Like that's yeah. been, you see the market correction happen like every three or four years where it's like, okay, we're all drafting small. And then the big guy is like, oh, is he going to be able to keep up? And then everybody drafts big and it's like, oh, is the small guy going to get crushed in the yeah. <laughs> So Logan Stanley was one of those guys where I'm like, oh, is he going to be, you know, mobile enough to, yeah. to, to compete with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl? And I thought he did a great job for, for the Jets and this really turned into a good kind of bottom pick. Uh, defensive guys so um, yeah I mean the Jets they just they were the better team each and every night and uh, Hellebuck stood on his brain and the the rest of the team they came up big I, that you know Ehlers goal in overtime I think really kind of sunk the Oilers and even though it wasn't an elimination game I think that was kind of the dagger there and and the fact that Ken Holland wants Mike Smith back next year um, that it's not really surprising considering how decent slash good he was but to trust a 38, 39 year old goaltender, I don't know. Like, what do you do with Koskinen now? Like, that deal's looking even worse. It was laughable when it first signed. Like, well, that was Peter Shirelli with like 75% out the door being like, let me just sign this deal right before yeah. I get fired. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. And yeah. the Oilers let him do it. Now, of course they did. That's the Oilers. But yeah, it's, it's a little suspect that their goaltending is far from perfect. And we talked about that in the season preview with, uh, with Kelly Rudy. Like, of all the Canadian teams, they're one of the the only teams that didn't have you know stable goaltending heading into the season, and they got it for the most part between the combination of those two. But can in the you playoff. rely on a, like a thirty nine year no. old? No, this do is it not Marty Brodeur. Like we're not talking about <laughs> we're not talking about Marty Turco. Anybody like in that elder age, you know? I don't think uh, we're seeing Tim Thomas two Eddie Belfour. Like I don't know. Like it's just they're not walking through that door. So uh, it's, it's 
I mean, Oilers are going to Oilers. And, and if you have one bad injury to Mike Smith, even if he plays half decent next year, Miko Koskinen might get bought out in the yeah, summer. I think he's going to. So, like, what the hell do you do with your goaltending situation? They don't have any guys in the system who I think can take over. I mean, Stuart Skinner played a couple of games, but I don't think he's ready. Um, he might have to be a, some sort of a, a backup slash emergency call-up yeah. guy. Like, I don't know. Because you're right, money-wise, I mean, you're you're paying... You're paying your big guys right now, not to the same extent as the Maple Leafs, but, you know, close. I mean, that uh, nurse extension has already kicked in, if it hasn't already, I, I believe. But, uh, yeah, it's just a, a lot of another, uh, more more questions in Oilers land when this was supposed to be another run. They were supposed to get by the Jets. This is not supposed to happen. Same with the Leafs. A lot of question marks, and that's what playoffs brings. Like They bring a lot of joy, and they also bring a lot of question marks for a lot of these teams. Well, you look at Montreal, there's a lot of questions. Oh, is Mark Bergevin coming back <laughs> next year? Mark Bergevin oh. is, he was laughing in his red suit in the yes. in the Canadian's hallway at the Scotiabank Arena, just cackling knowing that he's coming back he's next year. He's got another year for sure yeah. of all the speculation and trades that he loves to do as well. Just whipping that glorious uh, silver mane. Oh, in the yeah. air. Yeah, hair is red suit. And smiles out in full force. Yeah. Love Mark Bergevin and his, uh, his style. Uh, another series quick. Avalanche over the Blues. Another sweep in four. The Falk injury definitely hurt the Blues. Uh, scoring as well. Like, I really thought, again, the series was supposed to be a lot closer. Avalanche really took it to him. Outscored 20-7 to in the series. Uh, only seven goals in four games for those Blues. Just didn't come together. Tarasenko came back, but he wasn't. 100%, I could tell. Um, yeah, just not a lot of depth scoring. And you got to keep up scoring-wise when you're playing the Avalanche, as the Golden Knights are finding out right now. Yeah, the, the Blues just got outplayed. Yep. Like, this was the biggest mismatch in the first round. You you can even take a look at the Jets-Oilers. The Blues-Avs from Game 1 was over. Yep. Uh, the, the, the Avs are just so much more dangerous. Um, the, the most interesting thing for the Blues all around was Jordan Bennington wanting to fight people again. Yeah. Uh, which I laughed at for Philip Grubauer on Instagram <laughs> once the series was over being like, oh, this is how I'm feeling. And it's like a photo of Grubauer laughing off right. as, as he was coming over to fight him. <laughs> uh, the Blues are still a good team, but they're not in the same stratosphere as Colorado. And I think that was pretty clear. Absolutely. Uh, Golden Knights, like we just mentioned, they... Had a really tough series with Minnesota. This one, I again, I really thought the West was going to be so tight, and I'm glad this one came to fruition. Seven-game series, great overall. A lot of back and forth. Flurry was unbelievable. Um, Talbot was equally as good. Like He was just a step below, and he had a, a shutout in there as well. And for the Wild to come back from being down 3-1 in this series against a, a Stanley Cup favorite, it shows a lot of character. It shows a lot of fight. And it's great to see guys like Kaprizov and Erickson Eck and all these guys get the playoff experience, the notoriety, and to have a really, really good series with the Golden Knights. It was fantastic to watch. Yeah, and, and this isn't the same Minnesota Wild that we've seen for the past decade of just boring dip and chase, defensive zone, eliminated in round one, even though they were eliminated in round one. Uh it's not the same team. They have excitement in their game, which is a crazy thing to say about the Minnesota Wild because they've never had excitement in their no. game. Uh, since Marion Gabrick, they haven't had excitement That's exactly in the, game. the point I made. Um, yep. Kirill Kaprizov is phenomenal. He's so much oh. fun to watch. And <laughs> remember, we were just talking about, you know, oh, where are the Oilers going to do a net? They don't have any prospect. Cam Talbot! <laughs> you had him! He had one and a half bad seasons, and they cut bait getting... Anthony Stolar's back for him. Yeah. And Cam Talbot is one of was one of the best goaltenders in the first round. 100%. Um 
Yeah, Minnesota, they got the pieces, man. They've got a history. Oilers with Dubnik. Like, yeah. Same Minnesota team as well. Had Dubnik for so many years. Yeah. Uh, just, again, like castaways. Minnesota just, is that dog at the kitchen table who just, like, waits for the scraps <laughs> to fall over the table and then just, just goes to town on them. So That's a great, a great analogy. But, I mean, they, like... Uh-huh. Uh, you know their defense is still great. They got you know Suter is still serviceable, and you have um, Dumba and, and Brodine and Jared yep. Spurgeon like solid solid decor. And then up front they're getting some more and more you know higher end offensive pieces. I look at Minnesota and I say, boy Jack Eichel would look pretty good in oh, green there. No kidding, hey. You, you would have to give up some some top prospects. Probably not Kaprizov, but you <laughs> give up one of your like Dumba on the back end, maybe, and uh, you know one of your t- higher end prospects, and maybe a guy like Ryan Hartman or Erickson Eck or a package of all this. But yeah, yeah. that would be your centerman going forward. One hundred percent. So I, I think Minnesota they're on the up and up, and they really push Vegas. But uh, I mean, the Golden Knights are just a little bit of a step ahead when it comes to experience, talent level. Flurry's just a little bit better than Talbot, but uh, still a really fun series. Very fun series. And uh, the, the two, Avalanche and Golden Knights, we, we've been talking about this series, and we'll get to that in a quick second as well, but the, it's been a series we've been talking about for the beginning of the season. Like, this has been destined. Whoever's coming out of this division could arguably be the West winner and be in the Stanley Cup final. We'll talk about that in a second. So it was really great to see that. Uh, the Islanders over the Penguins, this series in six games, I called it. Like Again, like I did not have a lot of faith in the Penguins. I, crazy that they end up being the number one seed in this division and the Islanders being one of the best four teams of like of recent memory, like they're just a great team. All those teams, Boston and Washington, and, and the Penguins and Islanders are so evenly matched that it could have gone in any sort of direction. Uh, but yeah, the Islanders played their defensive game like they always do under Barry Trotz, and they got like Palmieri and Nelson and the goaltending situation. Just very well-rounded team effort. Barzell was great. Uh, it's just yeah, one of those series where. Penguins again, they stopped their stars. Malkin and Crosby, for the most part, were fair, fairly quiet. The Islanders play the Penguins perfectly, and they, they have for the last couple of years. They've caused the Penguins fits and just have been really, really solid against them. And they just play that Barry Trot system, which a lot of fans hate because it's kind of boring. Oh, yeah. But it wins them hockey games. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be the one to say it, but the Pittsburgh Penguins have been knocked out in the opening round for three years in a row now. So you might have to make some changes. We'll see what happens with Tristan Jari. Man, he mm-hmm. had an awful, awful postseason, giving away pucks and just really bad rebound control. And um, you, you kind of wonder what the future is looking like there for him in the Nets. Uh, you wonder if Casey DeSmith's going to take over a little bit more of share of the net going into next year. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, the Islanders are the Islanders, man. They there's they're a good team. Like they are. They. they they're not flashy or that exciting aside from Matt Barzell, but they went to the third round last year. They like, are a they, good team. They're solid and they're kind of boring, but they they know how to win games. And that's what they did against the Penguins and played them perfectly. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's another step up against Boston in this next round, but there there's a chance that they could go to the round three again this year. And and I wouldn't be surprised. No, hundred percent. They they play a great style of hockey both in the regular season and it's translating into playoff success. So they cannot be uh, upset over in Islanders land. It's fantastic to see uh, the Bruins, like we just mentioned, over the Capitals. That one was only a five game series. Uh, the top line of the bees were just fantastic. They really uh, made all their work 
early in the series. And that Craig Smith double overtime goal in Game 3 really, I feel, took the the, the win of the sales of the Capitals. Uh, they, the Caps only scored two goals for the rest of the series to wrap up it up. It's just a uh, really good game. And it's nice to have uh, um, Rask back as well mm-hmm. uh, for if you're a Boston fan. Rask is just so good. And I, I know there's a lot of Bruins fans who don't like him. And it's like, he's like a top three goaltender in the NHL his entire career. Like, yeah. he's been incredible. Um, that Elias Samsonov blunder behind. I've I've never seen a goaltender move so slowly back into his own back, pipes exactly. in double overtime of a playoff game. I've never seen something like he that before. He needed some orange juice or a banana or something because he was or just screaming ragged. from Alex Ovechkin and <laughs> yeah. rushing coming off the bench. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it really was. The Bruins were arguably the hottest team coming down the stretch in the NHL. They were so good in the last month of the season. And the Caps were just kind of fine down the back stretch. They mm-hmm. weren't really great. And I like the Bruins matchup against the Caps because the Bruins can play that rough and tumble style. They can. But they have more depth than the Capitals do this year. Um, and... The Caps just had such a carousel of goaltenders. They went with Vitek Vanasek for a couple of games, and then Craig Anderson came in, and <laughs> then Sam Solov came in the net. Like you need a bit of consistency there, and then there's just like two Rask just chilling, stopping beach balls coming his way. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that one I wasn't overly surprised with. Uh, the Bruins have a great team; they're just consistently great year over year, and they are built for the playoffs. And the Caps still have some of that magic from 2018, but this is a little bit different of a club, and I think Boston's just a bit more battle tested. All season, though, the goaltending carousel was there in Washington. Like it wasn't just the playoff situation where people were hurt. Like between Samsonov and uh, and Vedicek, like they basically played 50-50 a lot of the season. So it wasn't like there was one guy really carrying the load on this team. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. Kept them both kind of fresh, although it didn't pay off in the in the postseason when it really matters. And the whole situation regarding. Samsonov and uh, and Kuznetsov and the whole COVID situation be on the list multiple times in the same year. Like, it's very questionable. The, in my opinion, like the leadership of this team, like the the fact that they kept breaking protocols and stuff. Like, where where does that come from, and why does it keep happening? And I know you're frustrated with everything COVID wise, but not a lot of teams are are being in a situation where you're losing good players. Down the stretch, it just can't happen like that. No, and they they had so many stretches of the season where they didn't have a full lineup, and it's kind of remarkable they finished as high as they did in the standings, even with you know patches of Ovechkin being out and Samsonov and Kuznetsov and um, you know injuries throughout the lineup. They're, freaking Henrik Lundqvist didn't play for them this year. Exactly, like he was supposed to be their backup. That could have so, helped, eh? Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, the the Caps are still good, but I don't think they're elite. Stanley Cup contending worthy anymore, which I always put the Bruins in pretty much every year. Yeah, exactly. Uh, even in a season like this. Uh, last series we'll touch on quickly. Hurricanes over the Predators in six games. This one, a lot more closer than the three of us uh, even uh, ever imagined. We thought the Predators were going to get swept. And the fact they got it to six games uh, w- was very impressive. They, they got to uh, the goaltender uh, of the Hurricanes. And, and even now, I mean, they're playing tonight and uh, against the, the Lightning, the Hurricanes are, and they're going with Peter Mrazek. So, it, again, another goaltending carousel in a way where they're just, you have one bad game or whatever, I guess two bad games if you're Hurricanes, 
then you're getting switched out. But uh, what do you want to say about the Hurricanes and, and taking over the Preds? A series that was expected to go this way? Did you expect it to go six games, or, or how did you see it playing out? Yeah, I had it only going five. Um, yeah. And you know what? I think a lot of that also has to do with just the amount of overtimes they played as well, because Nashville just kind of came out on the right end of a couple of those overtime games. Carolina definitely has a lot more talents and a lot more firepower than the than the Preds do, and a lot more consistency in their game. Um, this hasn't been an easy playoffs for Carolina. They've lost a lot of guys to injuries and have had some inconsistent moments as well. Um they're a team going in that I actually had as as one of my final four teams. So uh, I was a bit surprised to see the series. I think, you know, UC Saros is, you know, uh, an up-and-comer goaltender. I mean, he's been in the league for a number of years, but he's been kind of in Pecorino shadow for a while. Yeah. Um, he's finally starting to come into his own, I think, a lot. And for Carolina, I mean, Alex Nedeljkovic played pretty well in that first round. Hasn't been great in round number two, but mm-hmm. um, I think they still need a little bit more out of, you know, guys like Sveshnikov and, um, you know, Ajo, some of their main guys. They, they kind of need to drive a bit more of the play I think but in round one they did enough that they were able to to get past them and and it unfortunately had set them up with a, a date with the Tampa Bay Lightning who were just rolling on all cylinders so that is a quick quote-unquote look at uh, all the first round matchups that were taking place there in the NHL playoffs we'll touch on the second round that is currently underway uh, we'll start things off with that Bruinders or sorry <laughs> I combined the both names Bruins and Islanders in English uh, what is your kind of key to the series as we sit at one game apiece um, the stats are they're going to the overtime right now here in game three so uh, very interesting to see how this plays out as we move along here in the night but what's one of your keys to the series uh, to see how we get a winner out of the series well I think Boston wins the series if they can get secondary scoring going and I think that starts and ends with Taylor Hall um, if Taylor Hall can really take over a series, I think the Islanders are in a lot of trouble because the Islanders' defensive scheme is really keying in on that top line, as any other team would. Um, and I think if the Islanders get enough def- they, they, they basically are just going to rope a dope, I think, the Bruins to death over the course of this series. And they've done a good job. Like, they're they're going into overtime here. They could go up 2-1 in the series. Um, that would be a huge thing for the Isles. And just being able to generate a bit more of that consistent play in their game, I think, is is huge for them. They live on consistency. They thrive on consistency under Barry Trotz. Um, so I think that's going to be the biggest things for both teams, but I still have Boston winning the series. I had the meeting in round two. Um, I think Boston, just their experience and just their their finishing power is just a little bit higher, I think. The, the Islanders, I mean, Josh Bailey, I think, has been one of the most underrated players in the NHL over the course of his entire career. He's been great in these playoffs. Uh, Matt Barzell's, you know, elites. But I think for the Bruins, they just have so many weapons, both on the on the forward crew and the back end as well. I think it's going to be tough for the Isles to, to take them out. One of the things that I was looking into is just which goalie do you roll with if you are the Islanders? We've seen uh, Varlamov is playing tonight. He's played fantastic. Only one goal allowed. We've seen uh, Sorokin as well. Uh, I mean, again, it's more of a system with Barry Trotz and co, but uh, the goaltending has to continue to be top-notch if you're going to get past a Bruins team that is loaded, not just the top line like we've mentioned before. They do have that scoring depth uh, with Taylor Hall and co. Uh, but yeah, the goaltending for for me and the Islanders, the, the defensive strategy is always going to be there, but can the goalie live up to that defensive strategy to make it worthwhile and give the offensive guys of the Islanders a chance to uh, play with fire with the Bruins as well? Well, and Varlamov's had such a fantastic season. He has. Just right from, from puck drop of, of this shortened NHL season. So I think you go with him, and he's had better showings against the Bruins this year than Sorokin has, so I think you ride with him. Uh, another guy that I think gets lost in all of this and just his playoff acumen, his scoring ability, and his ability to step up in big moments 
David Krejci, man. Like, David Krejci is a stone-cold killer when it comes to elimination games, crunch time, those type of things. Yeah. So I think for the Islanders, as much as you want to key in on that top line, Hall and Krejci are two guys who can take over a game. 100%. That's a great point. Uh, next series, Hurricanes versus the Lightning. We touched on this one as well. Uh, right now, as we sit, 2 nothing. The Lightning have the lead. Uh, this game as well, Game 3 going on as well tonight. 2-2. Two, two. Uh, they're almost about halfway through the third period, so another tight battle, uh, which is, you always love to see that in playoff hockey. Uh, what's one of your keys to the series for this one? Well, I think for the Hurricanes at this point, it's just going to be about survival. Um, they've lost a bunch of guys to injuries over the last number of games. I mean, the latest being Vincent Trocek uh, and and guys that uh, are going to be out of the lineup for a while, like Nino Niederreiter. Um, you know, Rod Brindamore was asked about him, and he's like, yeah, he's going to be... He, don't expect him to come back anytime soon. So those are two of your top nine forwards that are already gone probably for the rest of the series. Uh, And you're already down to nothing in a game where you could go down three, nothing in the series. So I think this is just about survival, uh, trying to get whatever you can past the, the lightning who are just really, really solid defensively as much as credit as their offense is given. I mean, Andre Vasilevsky, I believe is the best goaltender in the NHL. And even though he's hasn't had the best postseason, he's had a few moments where he's looked a little bit shaky. Um, he's just got he's got that cup now. He's got the Vesnas. He's got the experience. He's still young. Yeah. Um, and for Carolina, if you're Sebastian Ajo or Andrei Svechnikov, literally throw every puck you ever receive in your entire life over the next couple of games at him. <laughs> in your entire life. In your entire <laughs> life. If you if you get a puck in warm up, fire it down <laughs> the ice it. and hit him with it because <laughs> you might bank it into the net on my count. It's crazy to think of um, Vasilevsky being a 20-year-old rookie playing backup behind Ben Bishop during their one of their title runs. I remember they were facing the Rangers and Marty St. Louis and all that stuff. And, and just we knew how good Vasilevsky could be, even at that young of an age. And the fact that he's paid off so far for the Lightning and so well-deserving of his contract that he, that he got and, and stuff. And... It's crazy that uh, that good of a goaltender can play behind that great of a defensive core and an offense that is so potent. It makes the Lightning so difficult, and they are so built. They've been built for this for years. With They've Hedman been built and for, for half a decade. Exactly. And it's just it, it's impressive to see. It's kind of similar to what I guess the Avalanche hoped to accomplish in the West like, with uh, McKinnon's contract and a lot of good value deals, both on the back end and on the front end. Uh, they just need the goaltender like Vasilevsky. Hopefully, maybe Grubauer is that in one way or another, but we'll see if they end up meeting in a uh, Stanley Cup final. That would be quite the something as well. Like you mentioned, my point was just, can the Hurricanes solve Vasilevsky? Uh, just keep throwing pucks at him, like you mentioned. That mm-hmm. was the only way you can get to him and uh, you know, kind of create that traffic in front of him. Uh, Canadians and Jets, we kind of touched on this series as well with the, the Shifley hit. And we kind of touch on how this rest of the series goes with the suspension. Now we know what the suspension is. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see. Like I mentioned, if Game 6, Game 7, it gets down to it, and Shifley is back in the lineup and it's a do-or-die situation for the Jets, it's going to be super must-watch TV. Yeah, and in how much do you want to put Shifley on the ice to risk all hell breaking loose. I mean, if you're the Jets, kind of have to. You might be facing elimination, or once you get into game six, game seven, you're either trying to eliminate your opponent or you're going to get eliminated yourself. So you you ride your big guns into the pavement. Um, so Shifley's probably going to play a lot in those games if it gets that far. I, I think this is going to be a series that will probably go six. Uh, I think the Habs got off on a really strong note, especially first period. They looked so sharp in that first period against the Jets the other night. Um, 
I think the Jets still have more firepower, but I wouldn't be surprised to see the Hurricanes take this in six, or the Hurricanes, the the Canadians take this in six, okay. just because Carey Price is a different type of goaltender when it comes to clutch situations, and I think that Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield are two players who have really broken out and can change a series in a, in a second, and I think if the the Habs with the loss of Shifley, if they take two of the next three games. I think they have some players with that killer instinct that Toronto maybe maybe didn't, yeah, that yeah. they have enough to close out a series. Interesting. No, it's a, a good analysis there. Um, are you of the mindset, I think like a lot of folks, where the Canadian division has been so high scoring and so you know back and forth, do you feel like the winner, whoever comes out of this Canadian division, doesn't really stand a chance when it gets to the final four and, and one of these American teams is going to take them out in that third round. Are you of that mindset? I think a lot of folks out there kind of have that feeling where Canada is playing its own different league basically this year. And these, these States teams, they haven't seen them. Like, I guess they haven't seen each other, which makes it a lot more interesting. But I, I just feel like this Canadians team, no matter what happens in, in the next round, it's just not going to, uh, it's not going to go well as they get to a potentially Stanley Cup final berth. Well, whoever comes out between the Jets or Canadians, it's already decided that they're going to face either the Colorado Avalanche or the Vegas Golden Knights. Mm-hmm. So have fun with that. Yeah. Um, I They're the top two teams in the NHL this year. So, I, I mean, my everything, <laughs> so, everything on paper says wh- whoever comes out between the Jets or Habs is going to get smoked into the face of the earth <laughs> by either Nathan McKinnon and his band of merry men or the Vegas, we've been to the cup finals and are sick Golden yeah. Knights. So I, with depth. I I don't see any way, but again, stranger things have happened in the playoffs, so I, I can't say it's not going to happen. True. But I, whoever comes out, I'm going to put a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of my betting, whether it's fictional or not, uh, <laughs> into into the the Avalanche moving on to the Cup final. That basically answered my last question about the, the last series, Avalanche and Golden Knights. Uh, I really feel like this one is going to go, the winner's going to go to the final, I yep. think, regardless. Uh, I You probably bet the same thing as well. So, very interesting. That, that is the hockey realm. That was uh, almost probably, what, 45 to an hour just on hockey. So, that, really appreciate the chat there. Uh, one final thing on the NHL front. The Buffalo Sabres finally win themselves a draft lottery. They missed out on on uh, the McDavid draft, and they got themselves, they got Darlene in the 18 draft. Yep. But now they finally win one. They missed uh, out on Ekblad as well. They missed out on Ekblad as well. There's been multiple times where Buffalo's been right up there. Uh, the Kraken, like you mentioned, they're taking num- pick number two, which is going to be a very good pick regardless. And Anaheim, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Anaheim does. Uh, both them and Los Angeles Kings, they've got so much young talent. And it's great to see because uh, that California rivalry in years to come could be very, very good. So uh, those are your top three when it comes to the draft lottery. Yeah, I mean, the consensus number one for Buffalo is Owen Power going to them. He's playing at the World Championships for Canada, who, by the way, if you haven't seen it, the goal that they scored to eliminate the Russians today. Oh, my Troy God. Troy Stetcher turned into Connor McDavid for about <laughs> five seconds. And it's the easiest tap in Andrew Mangiapane's had in his life. Um, How did he get it? The, the move itself is fantastic, yeah. and you can go check it out on YouTube. How did he get his backhand pass 
through that's, the defender there and the defender facing Mangiapane. That's the most impressive part of that play to me. Yeah. I mean, the toe drag is sick and yes. it's beautiful. Yeah. He went backhand, cross crease through two sticks through the goaltender yeah. and went tape to tape for Mangiapane for the one-timer at the side of the net. Oh, like, man. disgusting. And I uh, I saw from, uh, according to Hockey Canada, that Stetcher had pulled off a move like that in practice the other day oh. and Shane Doan said, well, that's easy in practice. Try it, try it in the game. <laughs> really? So... He got called out by Mr. Doan? By Shane Doan. Wow. Yeah. Impressive. But anyways, Owen Power, probably going number one to Buffalo. But if you're Buffalo, man, you'd really want, especially if you're losing Jack Eichel, Mm -hmm. you'd really want like a high-end scorer. Power is a like power is being compared to a little bit lesser Victor Hedman, oh, just he because really? he's like six foot six and huge and can skate like Shit. the wind. Okay, so playing with Darlene with that would be great. But if you're Buffalo, you already have Darlene on the back end. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to trade down or trade that pick. They 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 need that pick. Yes, they do. <laughs> they need they need a win. They need any sort of win right now. If you're a Buffalo Sabres Man. fan, um, Seattle's going to be fascinating at number two. Yep. Do you choose like a really flashy player to be like? Put them up on all the boards around uh, Climate Pledge Arena, being like, "Here's our star, flashy." Like Kent Johnson would be up if if they were a little bit lower. Kent Johnson's not going to go number two, but out of Michigan, he's just a human highlight reel. Is he? Yeah. But man, if you're an expansion team, be real nice to just have a cornerstone defenseman that you can lean on for the next decade, right? What if that trade came to fruition? What if they they swapped? move up? What if they swapped and Buffalo got a few more ass? Or sorry, Buffalo gave up a few more ass. No, how would that work? No, Seattle, Seattle would have, have to give up to. assets to get to I mean, one. the draft happens after the expansion draft. Yeah, yeah. So that's Interesting. possible. Interesting. I just feel like you said, if, if Buffalo's looking to, maybe they don't want the defenseman at one, they could trade down with somebody who really wants a defenseman at one. And like you said, Seattle doesn't have the assets at the moment to yeah. make that trade. But uh, yeah, crazier things have happened. Well, though. and the other thing that I've been seeing a lot, and I know it's going to excite a lot of Tigers fans, I've seen... A lot of mock drafts that have Cole Sillinger being taken by the Calgary Flames at number twelve. Holy it's right, smokes! It's right around where Sillinger's probably going to go. Like top t- ten to fifteen. Ten probably. to fifteen probably is going to yeah. be right around where Cole Sillinger is going to be chosen. I mean, there's other teams like the the Blackhawks and the Flyers and other places where he could end up. Yeah. But I've seen a lot of mock drafts that have uh, have Cole Sillinger's name next to the Flaming Sea. I'm a little bit nervous about that. I mean, my first reaction was great. I love it. I just, I, I'm. I don't want to go down the Hunterson Carrick road. <laughs> I really don't. I was so excited when Hunter got drafted. I was like a 24, I think. And it oh, it just brings back bad memories. It didn't ever turn out with, with the... And I guess Matt Keatley to an extent as well. Yeah. He got a, a cup of coffee there as well. But uh, yeah, Tigers and the Flames. The one, like, the one disappointing part, and I mean, all credit to him, it's it's allowed him to be a first-round pick. But when they announce his draft, they'll say from uh, Sioux Falls, Falls cool yeah. cylinder. So mm-hmm. that will that'll kind of sting as Medicine Hat fans. I but. wonder, I'm sure whether it's uh, Sammy Cosentino or... Bob McKenzie or whoever's doing the draft coverage for whatever sports station, they'll probably throw in a, a oh, Tigers yeah. reference yeah. for sure. Well, again, and the other interesting one is Corson Kuhlman's because yeah. he's probably not far behind Sillinger. He's probably somewhere between 15 and 25, I'm guessing. He's going to be a first rounder though, yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Which is fat. I mean, another he had, he Brooks had, defenseman yeah. going in the first round. That's fantastic. He had eight points in seven games at the U18s. Yeah, like, yeah. Very quietly, was one of the best defensemen in that tournament. That is fantastic. I love that. I love that the, the Bandits and, and that AJHL crew 
is getting some respect because that's still some damn good hockey down there. Yeah, and you're seeing more and more Junior A players being drafted in first rounds over the yeah. last number of years. I mean, you look at Alex Newhook and uh, Dante Fabro and uh, Tyson Jost. Tyson and Jost, yeah. They're, they're, Kale McCarr, I mean, Kale McCarr is on a different planet, but <laughs> uh, it's happening more and more. And I mean, I, I just saw the other night, Alex Newhook's playing in the playoffs now for Colorado. Yeah. So it, it it's it's a path forward for sure. I still remember Newhook being drafted uh, by the Avalanche. I think he went 15. And I remember the behind the scenes video footage of his buddies surprising him from the back and coming through and like giving him oh, wearing no. all of his jerseys and stuff. That's one of the, the few draft memories that I remember uh, watching of Alex Newhook and getting drafted by the Avalanche. That's well, cool. the other the other interesting thing will be Anaheim at number three. They moved back a spot with Seattle jumping ahead of them. Mm-hmm. I think they're set up for a really good position. I think they're going to go defense, but if they go forward or defense, they're either getting a forward to play with Trevor Zegers, yeah, or they're getting a defenseman to play with Jimmy Drysdale. Oh boy! <laughs> like either oh way, boy. they're going to be getting a top three player to play with both of those guys who I think are going to be superstars in the NHL. One thing I just thought of: what's your thought on John Gibson as a goaltender? Do you feel like the timeline of the Ducks? is going to pair well with a guy like Gibson. I know he's kind of in his mid to high 20s. Is the speed of this rebuild uh, in, in line with his progression, or do you feel like the Ducks would be better off investing in, in a younger goaltender to kind of pair with these young stars that they're building uh, both up front and on the back end? I just think that a goaltender like John Gibson doesn't come around that often. Sure. And he's a netminder that has already bought into Anaheim Systems. You haven't heard his name in a whole lot of trade rumors. Um, I think just playing in front of that defense has really let him down over the last number of years. Oh, my God. Just has not had any sort of support. I mean, if you want to use a baseball analogy, it's like Mike Trout. Like, (laughs) just no help. Just, you know, playing his game. And I mean, the last couple of years, his stats haven't been great. But the the first year the Ducks really started to go downhill, he still had like a 920 save percentage. He's a solid goaltender. And I think if you're Anaheim, you're, those goaltenders don't grow on trees. So yeah. I think you keep on to him. He's It's not like he's 30. You know, he's still, I think, 24, 25 right now. He's still a young netminder, 26. Um, so he still has a lot of runway left in him. And especially if you can speed it up by getting this third overall pick into the NHL, maybe not this year, but next year. Um, I think that could really help out, especially when you got, got guys like Zegers and Axe Comtois and Drysdale and... Um, and you know Troy Terry, those type of guys who are still in the lineup. We were both wrong. He's 27, so just 27. one more year okay. off. Yeah. Uh, making a very respectable 3.3 million dollars. Yeah, great deal. That's a fantastic that, deal. You don't trade that contract. No. I'm trying to see uh, when he signed that deal. I'm trying to do a quick Google's here because that deal, in retrospect, is a fantastic value for Anaheim. Um, I'm just trying to search here. I should actually search up John Gibson contract. That would Help me out here. Let me just quickly type it in as we uh, stall here. Eight years, $51.2 million deal that he signed. When? Doesn't tell me a year. 2020? No. Six point, now he's saying $6.4 million. Hmm. Maybe he just signed a new deal. Is that, does that sound right, Scott? Ducks re-signed Gibson to an eight-year oh, okay. in 2018. So 6.4. Oh, okay. That's still like a decent I don't know deal. What, Wikipedia had a 3.3. They're just idiots. So 6.4, <laughs> though. That's not that's not terrible for a very good starting goaltender in this league. Okay, let's rattle through some basketball talk. And we still got baseball to go. Man, this is going to be a long one. We really appreciate <laughs> you joining us. 
If you're sticking with us this far, we greatly appreciate it. Okay, Eastern Conference, first round of the NBA playoffs was a quick one. Not like this podcast. It was super quick. <laughs> Sixers in five games uh, over the Wizards. The Nets completely destroyed a really bad Celtics team. Just that was undermanned the entire series. Uh, the Bucks swept the Heat. Definitely, again, another series I did not expect whatsoever. Uh, the Heat going to the finals last year, going out in the first round, completely uh, did not match what I was thinking. And the Hawks, in their first playoff appearance in so many years, beat the Knicks in five games. Uh, any takeaways from that first round in the Eastern Conference? Uh, Trey Young's the supervillain we all need. 100%, uh, right? Great. I love it. Um, the the Nets and the Bucks and the 76ers are just on an island of their own, I think, right so now. So good. I mean, the, the Hawks are still great, but like I think those three teams are just just swimming in the Caymans right now. They're <laughs> so far on that island. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to... I think right. I'm gonna get a little bit more invested once kind of the the conference finals rolls around because yeah. then you start getting the heavy hitters facing each other. Yeah, um, had a lot of fun with the the Knicks and the the Hawks series, but I think in the East, like you said, it was just so quick that it was like okay, these series are over right They're, from tip off. Yeah, they were super. Uh, we knew the outcome way in advance. Uh, if you thought the Toronto Raptors had a shot at any of these <laughs> monsters, like <laughs> come on, yeah, there was no way they would get up to. They would have needed to get it up to, uh, I guess, a fifth position in yeah. order to avoid any of these top three, and it just wasn't going to happen uh, in any scenario. Uh, that Bucks net series in round two, be sick. That's going to be sick. Like that, that is a, a round three, round four. Like that's a championship level matchup. That could be the series of all these playoffs in the NBA. I mean, you know, Giannis has signed his his max deal, mm-hmm. so he's not going anywhere. But if you're the Bucks and you lose in the series, say in five games. You start asking a few questions like you really haven't mm. been able to get over that hump. And it's not like you're losing to a team who's like got no star power. I mean, mm-hmm. the Brooklyn's great. But if you're out in round two, is that really what you guys have been building towards the last couple of years? It's the same spot that you would have been out in last year against yeah. the Heat, too. Yeah. So uh, it's a tough one. And they lost in round three to Toronto the year they before. They did. They did after being up 2-0. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. There's still a lot of questions. I mean, if the Nets go out in round two, what this crew... Presumably, we'll stay together for a while, so they're going to be hopefully get more kicks at the can. But you're right; like I don't know. Like I think you're right. The Bucks have to go six or seven. Like, let's put it this way: if 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 Giannis's contract was up after this summer, I think it'd be a much bigger oh. story because th- this would be the same. Like, can they get over the hump? And is he going to still want to stay with the Bucks if they can't get past the second or third round? The circus media wise would have been. There on opening night for the entire season if he hadn't signed his deal. Like he and needed if, to sign. If it. the Bucks were playing the Hawks, yeah. we're not talking about this. But because not. it's the Nets and everything that they've built towards this year and getting Blake Griffin and James Harden and Kyrie and Kevin Durant, like just this, yeah. this all-star lineup. Um, I mean, it's making for a great matchup, but it asks a lot of questions on both sides on like, okay, well, where do you go from here if you have a second round L next to your name after 100%. the season? No, that's a great point. And yeah, a lot of, again, it goes back to, it goes back to our NHL talk and a lot of joy on one side of the court and, and a lot of questions potentially in this early matchup. That's just the beauty and the, and the trials and tribulations of the playoffs as well. Yeah, like, it's, it's best. Just, so that, <laughs> this one is going to start on Saturday. Uh, the other series 
which we're we know as well. It's going to be Sixers and Hawks. Yeah, uh, that's going to start on Sunday. I'm really fascinated. The only matchup I really want in that one. You mentioned Trey Young mm-hmm. against Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons, well, can he lock him down? Ben Simmons is going to be huge because yeah. I mean Embiid's battling some injuries right now, mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. going to be huge for the 76ers. I mean, they battled through injuries over the years, and Simmons has proven that he can. Put a team on his back, but I mean Trey Young is just playing extremely well right now, and he's gonna be tough to shut down. Great to have a young guy like that really performing well uh, in his first playoffs. We can go to the West, and another guy playing very well in his first playoffs is Devin Booker. Yeah, uh, he obviously performed down in the bubble and winning all those games last year. Didn't end up making the playoffs, unfortunately, but uh, that series could end tonight. We could have Portland and Denver. That one's uh, already tipped off. That one's actually well into the fourth quarter as I quickly check the score. Uh, Nuggets are up by nine. So that, with 30 seconds left, that series is going to be done. Yeah. Nuggets and six. Nuggets and six. That's, oh, it's a shame, an absolute shame that Dame Lillard Mm -hmm. is now out in the first round. I mean, him or Jokic, the MVP of the league, could have been out in round one. Uh, again, way the playoffs worked out, hell of a series. That one was so fun to watch. Dame's a guy I can see. I mean, he's so like Mr. Portland. I don't know if he would ever leave, but like he he just needs to be surrounded by some better talent. Like Ugh. Portland just has this great all-star franchise changing player, and they just have had nothing to surround them with. Yeah. Yeah. Like LMA. LMA was his one of his yeah. best running mates. Uh, and CJ, it's again, it's another backcourt. Much like, uh, like it's a solid backcourt, but it's not at the level of of the Bucks or the Nets. No, or, it, it's it's like Lowry DeRozan yeah. from years back. It's like Wall and Beal. Like yeah. they, at some point, you got to break those guys up, and you got to find another way to do it. And where's all their money going towards? It's like you said, it's Dame who deserves it. McCollum's there. Uh, Nurkic is supposed to be their quote unquote big three, but he's been hurt yeah. a lot and not any fault of his own. He broke his leg there a couple years ago. That was like disgusting, but. Uh, yeah, like th- where they're getting their, how they're utilizing their funds to surround Dame is a little questionable. They thought uh, bringing a guy like Robert Covington and Melo and guys to play that three and D role. It's just like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's tough, very tough. Um, I started the conversation on Devin Booker that series with Phoenix and the Lakers uh, could be ending tonight. That's tipping off as we speak. Uh, do the Lakers force a seven game? I don't think so. I think you know. Especially, I mean, there's been a lot of questions around Anthony Davis, and I, I saw a stupid headline earlier this week was like, if if the Lakers are eliminated in this first round series, in this early series, is LeBron James' legacy going to be tainted? It's like, no! <laughs> what are you talking about? But uh, yeah, I, I just look at Booker, and the Suns are a more complete team, I think, this year than the Lakers. Last year was the Lakers' time to shine, and this year just hasn't really felt the same. It's tough to... Uh put a lot of stock as well into the shoulder of Chris Paul. I know yeah. he's been playing hurt as well and it, it's led to Booker coming through the last couple games and really showing out. They need that. They need that to continue with all the role guys, the depth that like you mentioned uh, in order to really pull this out and force a game seven. The other series in the West, uh, Dallas and the Clippers, all the road teams have won. Yeah. So by logic, this game six going back to uh, Dallas Clippers are going to win this one. It's going to go Game Seven, right? I think so. It's going to be one. I think there was a series. Wasn't the NHL recently what all the road teams won? It was like yeah. one of those weird stats as well. Yeah, it. I mean, it doesn't happen very often no. where you see the road team just be like utterly dominant <laughs> in all seven games. But um, I don't. You probably could have made the argument like 
last year of like, oh, there's no fans in the building, so home court or home doesn't ice matter. advantage doesn't matter as much. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this year it's been a bit of a weird one. Um, Luka Doncic is just a superhuman. With his neck all yeah, wrapped up. He messed up. You can barely see out of his left side. Well, I it's, saw, there. it's one of the craziest things I've seen in terms of a stat the other night. Um, he was involved in 31 of his team's 37 field goals. On the night. On the night. Like Ooh. either assisting or, or scoring himself. That. There were six field goals where he, did, wasn't, he wasn't involved. Part. And that's, that's him being on the bench. Like, yeah. that's just a normal run of the game. That is a crazy stat. That's a great pull. And uh, he's, and he's like, already had multiple 40-point performances. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. and he's, what, 23? Yeah. 22? If, if that, uh, as I quickly Google that. Like, he's, he's not human. Like, and, and. Yeah, 22 years old. To have that level of offensive execution, passing ability, ability to hit threes, ability to shut down other teams, like. It's it's pretty insane, and it makes me always wonder where it's like, he wasn't first overall in his draft. <laughs> nope. Like, it's crazy. That's going to be one of those weird stats. Not I'm not comparing him to Jordan, of course, but Jordan yeah. went three in that draft. And, uh, yeah, you look at, because I think it was like Marvin Bagley yeah. went two. Um, who was that first pick? Now, that's, that's an even greater question. Why is that escaping my mind? But I know. Uh, so was it Aiden? Yes. Yeah, Aiden out of I think he plays out of Kentucky. Um, or was he Arizona? That sounds right. I'm sorry. That's yeah, 2018 uh, for Trey Young. So those two are always going to mm. be linked together in that. Uh, yeah, it yep. was Aiden. Aiden first, Bagley two, and Doncic three. With Jaron Jackson four, Trey Young five. They get traded for yep. each other, and then Mo Bamba at six. Let's go. Yeah, you, there's always <laughs> in every draft. There's like that some guy in the top ten. You just like what the hell were they doing? Um, yeah, so good stuff in the NBA side. We'll see if uh, some of these series wrap up tonight. Like I mentioned, the Suns and Lakers were recording here on a uh, on a Thursday night uh, on June 3rd. So uh, in the MLB side of things, we'll touch on this quickly. The Jays currently sit fourth in the AL East. However, their run differential is second in the division. They're playing extre- extremely well, but there's some tough teams every year in the AL East. I mean, the Rays have won... I feel like like 25 of the last 30 games, like they're on a crazy good run. Uh, the Red Sox and Yankees, they've obviously uh, come back to earth and played extremely well with all their stars. Still, the Jays, a game and a half out of the wild card race. It's only June. There's a lot of time still. But what's your thoughts on the Jays season as of today? Well, I think the biggest story is just Vladdy Guerrero. And Holy just, smokes. Like he, he has finally arrived. Like it, it, it was funny. Like last year, last year he just was struggling all season long. He looks so much better at the plates with all the weight he dropped over the offseason. And he's just coming up in big situations where he was just, you know, I think his problem over his first couple of years in the league was he was very much like it reminded me of Giancarlo Stanton, like swing for the fences at every single pitch. uh, And if it's if he connects, it's a it's a homer. And if he doesn't. He's sitting back on the bench. Yeah. And unfortunately, over his first two years, the latter was happening more than the former. Mm-hmm. This year, it seems like he's finally figured things out. He's slow. He slowed down a little bit, which seems kind of like you, you, you it, it's kind of like trying to pen in a horse, you know, sure. at, at some <laughs> points, like they'll just run wild and like have no control. But I think now he's started to kind of settle into his groove and kind of the, the three, four spot in the lineup with him with uh, Hernandez have really formed a yeah. good kind of back to back in the lineup for the Jays. Um, and he has just been 
consistent. And I think that's been the part of his game he's always been missing since he came into the league. He's shown flashes of, man, this guy could lead the MLB in home runs every single year. But you need some consistency in that side of things. And not just consistency to bomb it out of the park, but to put balls in play and drive home guys who are sitting on second base. Vladdy's never been that guy. You use Bo Bichette or you use Kevin Biggio to driving guys from second. Vladdy is, okay, step up to the plate, and if he launches a solo shot, cool. If it's a grand slam... Even better. Better, yeah. Um, but he's finally starting to kind of settle in, and if there's guys on second and third, he's not always swinging for the long ball. He's knowing how to drive and runs a little bit more su- successfully, I think. He's got so much power that he doesn't need to bomb it like he yeah. was Was he in his head that he needed to. Like, he can... A normal you know, base hit for him is probably a double if he can speed it out, of course. His speed's always a little bit of an issue, but he's got so much power and so much uh, contact ability just from growing up and his size and whatnot. Well, it's, I, it's insane. I think his actual like swing mechanics have improved over the course of the offseason here to the point where he may not be trying to crush it like he used to, but his, his launch trajectory and his launch speed is the highest it's been in his career. Yeah. So I think that side of things has just been really impressive to see out of him. And, um, you know, Bo has had a good start to the season. Uh, the, the biggest question always comes down to the pitching for the Jays. Of course it is, yeah. And, and when you take a look at like the Rays, like keeping up with that offense and that pitching staff, like it's so tough. Another to, year of great Rays pitching. Yeah, yeah. So so tough, and I don't see this team fighting for a division championship. But I think they're going to be right in the thick of a wild card race, especially with George Springer if he can stay healthy. That's been their biggest issue in the early part of the season. He's the missed, biggest free agent of the entire league hasn't really played a lot with no, Blue Jays. No, no. And I think trying to get that chemistry on where he fits in in the lineup. I mean, finally, like I said, you get some certainty of, okay, we're going to, we're going to hit three, four in the lineup or four or five in the lineup with, uh, with um, Vladdy and Tay Oscar. Uh, where are we going to fit George Springer into all this? Because obviously you want either Bo or Kevin as your leadoff guy. Um, so and Marcus Simeon's and been Marcus, fantastic. Marcus Simeon's been great. And at the moment they made that signing, I'm like, that is a perfect middle of the lineup guy who doesn't have to play every single game, but can yeah. dri- drive in runs, can provide some offensive output, and is solid enough defensively where it's not like always a liability every time he takes to the field. And right? he's got some speed as well. Yeah. He can get around the bases. It doesn't hurt at all. Um, yeah, that we've talked about that as well. When we first got to spring training, this lineup for the Jays went all healthy. What do you like? There were, I think one of the spring training lineups had Biggio in that seven or eight hole. It's yeah. like, you can't keep him down that low. You yeah. just can't. But then, okay, who are you switching out? Who are you moving? You moving Rowdy Telez out of the five hole? Or you is Guriel dropping? Or like, Guriel, what are you another great point. Another great point. Yeah. yeah. This lineup uh, went all healthy, which hopefully is, will be soon. Uh, I, oh, it's insane. It's very insane. And it's a, ner- it's a terror, I should say, in English for a lot of this pitching. Hopefully the Rays, uh, hopefully the Red Sox with their, I mean, there's no Chris Sale right now for the Red Sox. And uh, outside of Garrett Cole, not a lot of big names out of New York is, uh, either. Yeah, and for the Jays, the encouraging thing is most of the guys on this team are under the age of 30, and this is like a lineup that you can carry on for the next half decade. Um, And the good thing with Toronto is their problem over the last, their problem since the Josh Donaldson, Jose Bautista, and Carnacion days is they've usually had like, a stretch of like, oh, Bo Bichette has been hitting like 320 over the last two weeks mm-hmm. and no one else in the lineup. Everybody mm-hmm. is a ghost. Yeah, it's yeah. just Bo sitting on an island. Yep. And it finally seems like this year, 
Bo will have a great night. Kevin will have a great night. Vladdy will be consistent. Marcus Simeon will come in and fill in the gaps a little bit. So you're finally starting to get guys in like a two-week period where you're saying there's six or seven guys on this team where everybody is having their nights and they're able to step up offensively. Whereas in the past couple of years, you're having one or two guys who are driving the offense and the rest of the lineup are hitting like 220. And it all adds up to a crazy amount of runs on the board as well, which helps the pitching staff as well. It all works together. If you're an offense that can put up the runs, create a little bit less stress on your pitching staff and get the wins that way. It's it's a good regular season strategy. How it will fare in the playoffs, it's a different story. Well, and one guy I think is going to be really key, especially to attracting free agents down the line. I mean, they, they've already attracted you know Ryu and Springer and some pretty big name guys. I think a real key guy, if, if he can have consistency in this game, which has been tough over the last couple of years, if they can get Robbie Ray mm. to pitch consistently, the, the Jays can say, come here for your reclamation project. Yep. Come here to guys who have been injured, have had Tommy John, have struggled with consistency over their delivery over the past couple of years. Come here. We'll rehabilitate you. We have the offense where if you have a bad game, they can get you six or seven runs Mm -hmm. and hopefully rehabilitate some careers. And they've been able to slowly do that with Robbie Ray. Um, And that's the way that they can start attracting some maybe big name pitchers to fill in the gaps. I mean, like who doesn't love what Alec Manoa did last yeah. week? Like so cool. Uh, I I know when they drafted him, I'm like, oh, this is just a giant pitcher who just seems like a cool dude and can throw heat. Yeah, like yeah. this seems like a perfect fit. Hmm. You got Nate Pearson. Hopefully he's able to. That's a guy who desperately needs to get some consistency in this game, whether that's at the major league level or keep him in the minors just to get his confidence back a little bit. But there there's pieces here for the pitching rotation. They're not quite there yet where you can challenge with a team like the Rays, but they're slowly getting there. The stats on Vladdy are are out of this world and a guy like at the tender age that he is, it's just it kind of goes to like what Bedard could be uh, in a couple of years. Imagine Vladdy in a couple more years, more experience, more time at the plate. Um he's already challenging for a triple crown and he's only 22 years old. Like uh, very very impressive and this is the the star potential that we've all known of and it's like you mentioned Scott like the consistency is coming around and the players around him in that batting order are helping him get these numbers as well and it's just great to see and another story I want to touch on as well the two way sensation that is Shohei Otani uh, a guy that nobody in our lifetime has ever done as well as a pitcher as well as a batter Uh, he's third in the entire league in home runs and he's a pitcher guys like what the like what are we doing here no, it's it. He's he, made in a factory. He's a freaking nature. Yeah, like he he is doing like you said things that people in our generation, our parents' generation, and our grandparents' generation have never seen. Going back um, to Babe to Babe, Babe Ruth, Ruth, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, he just has such control at the plate, both as a pitcher and a hitter. Um, there was one home run he hit about two weeks ago, and you know you see a pitcher, and sometimes they'll you'll have a good hitting pitcher, but they'll they'll hit it more for in play and trying to get guys on base. Yeah. And once you get on base, then you can swap out a pinch runner, and that's the end of your day, and you can go hit the showers and and dig into a, a, a thing of popcorn. Um, <laughs> Otani, his swing at the plate is so nice, and he hit this one homer the other night, and just the sound of it coming off his bat yes. it was just like. It's the best. Yeah. And to have a pitcher that's at Shohei Otani could say tomorrow, make me a DH for the rest of my career. And he might be a Hall of Famer and never pitch another game. Yeah. Like, and, and he's been solid on the pitching mound as well. So, um, yeah, he's just 
an absolute treat and it's it's special like relish in this time to watch a guy like Otani because quite honestly the way baseball has gone over the last number like 20 years it's becoming a lot more specialized you're getting guys who are like okay this is uh eight nine hitter who's going to be specializing and setting uh singles and that way we can get guys up at the plate that can you know drive in some runs or if you get a pitcher that says okay this is a guy who's best pitching on six days rest and uh is is good for throwing two and a half innings is on a pitch count to have something so special like this i don't know if we're ever going to see something like this again and this is i'm, I'm glad that the angels I mean, he's been around for a couple of years now. Injuries have kind of pro, uh, prevented this breakout from happening. But the Angels giving him the ability to do both of these positions has really opened up the entire baseball realm. This is going to create more Otanis from Japan, from all over the world, coming to Major League Baseball and potentially recreating this magic, which is insane. Um, I mean, his pitching... His ERA is great. He's striking out a bunch of guys. He is walking a bunch of guys mm-hmm. as well. That is one of his downfalls. He's basically walking close to, if not the same as, as he's striking him out. But I mean, that's that's a very very minor thing. And yeah, if you're your pitcher hitting in the top four of your lineup on a, any given day is out of this world, and it's just so great to see. And I'm so happy that injuries have allowed him to stay on the field. Uh, on both sides of the plate. Well, it'd be so easy for the Angels once he started getting injured the last couple of years to say, "Okay, what's we're we're shutting down this experiment." Like, right. like we we can't risk. You know, they bring him in as as you know this import from Japan, and he's supposed to provide an impact and um you know pitch some games. And and the moments he starts getting injured, it's like, okay, well, obviously him being at the plate three times a week and also pitching is is getting too much for him to to do physically yeah but they've they've kept on it even after his injuries and it's allowed him to become one of the most fascinating athletes on the planet right now yeah he's a star star an absolute star uh you know who's also a star yourself for being here scott ah thanks Uh, i really appreciate you jumping in today and uh and providing some great commentary like i mentioned uh you did a bang-up job all season long with tigers hockey and uh, you continue to kill it every single day with chat sports so greatly appreciate your time tonight and uh, thanks so much for joining us no thank you guys so much and appreciate uh, you letting me hop on for something like this and i appreciate everything you guys do for the local sports scene as well and bringing in interviews and, and talking about, you know, medicine hat and area sports, because it is so important to even in a time like this, where there hasn't been a, tol- a ton of local sports over the last year and a half um, to keep that going and to keep the local community informed and, and excited for what's going on. Uh, that's, that's a big thing. So I appreciate you guys doing that. Fantastic stuff. Uh, hopefully this is not going to take another two years or a year and a half to get on here. No, I'll charge you guys a few more beers. (laughs) There you go. Way way to go. Uh, For Scott Roblin, Colby McKee, signing off. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to On the Board. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash on the board podcast. Yes. Yes.